Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, August 30th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Hurricane Adelia, correct? Um, strengthened to a Category 3 four. or 4. four. Category yeah. 4 hurricane um, What an hour or so ago, I think, is when it strengthened uh, to a Category 4 hurricane. For those of us who have lived through um, pretty extreme conditions involving hurricanes, our prayers are certainly with those in the what, what do they call it? The, the Big Bend area of, of Florida. I'm not real familiar with the West Coast of Florida. I'm more familiar with the East Coast than I am uh, the West Coast because of the historical nature of hurricanes impacting um, Florida. But it looks to me like in the next couple of hours, a Category 4, I'm told now, hurricane will make landfall and uh, kind, kind of in the panhandle of Florida somewhere. Am I right, Rev? Somewhere east of Tallahassee. If I'm not it mistaken, it's like slightly east of Tallahassee, and obviously they're already getting storm effects. The I mean, the eye is actually very close to the coast of Florida right now. And we think our weather will begin deteriorating sometime late this afternoon, uh, on into the evening by midday tomorrow. From what I'm gathering, it's um it's about as good as it gets. Um, you made a point yesterday. Some of these hurricanes, it's almost like they sweep the room clean. You know, when they come through, they take out all the the hot, humid air, and after that, you have several days of a pleasant weather. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's not uh, technical or meteorological to say it, but it seems to me, and we've all, a lot of us that have been here a long time in this part of the world, have experienced storms like this and larger storms and direct hits and not close hits, but it seems like when they make their way through, you get a, I call it a clearer atmosphere for a while Yeah, you, you get better weather to clean up the debris, is what I've always yeah. said. You know, you got trees down everywhere and power lines i do want to ask andrew dockery we'll try to track him down again this morning uh wmbf meteorologist or jamie arnold one or the other mm -hmm. we think will join us at some point in time um this morning we had offering uh from fox news uh boots on the ground guy at the national level but i felt it more important to hear from a trusted and local um voice what what are the ill effects we can expect from hurricane adelia uh, i don't know um I don't know that anybody really ever knows. We suspect, we predict, we um, we model, we project these sorts of things uh, to be likely or not. They did say yesterday morning, uh, when I got here, I read something, the, the, the likelihood of intensifying was almost certain. I mean, they knew this thing was going to, uh, the conditions were conducive for strengthening. And um, so it's a Category 4 hurricane about to make landfall with the panhandle of Florida. It will work its way up the East Coast, right? K kind of a easterly bend. It's going to cross um, Florida. Correct. Obviously, it's on the west coast of Florida. It will cross over northern Florida into Georgia, and then it seems like come up pretty much the coast of South Carolina. But we will try to get us um, – we'll, we'll try to get and, – and look, these guys talk in weird languages, to be honest with you. I don't know exactly what they say when they say these things, except when's it going to start getting bad – and how bad is it going to get? I mean, in essence, that's kind of what I think the majority of us want to know. Uh, it's going to be weakened, no doubt about it. It's going to be significantly weakened. Um, not only is it going to be across land for a long period of time, you've got this um, this front that is steering it to the east, and that's kind of the cool front. If you look at the weather, and I did yesterday, um, this matters to me. Um, east northeasterly winds. Anytime I see that northeasterly wind you know cooler weather is on the way. So there's a front that will, uh, I guess, collide with the hurricane or the remnants of the hurricane by the time it gets to uh, to the Carolinas 
and that steers it back out of the ocean. That brings in cooler, less humid weather. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're praying, caring about our friends and neighbors down in, in Florida, but it looks to me like we're, we're going to escape the, uh, the, the situations that could be the case had we not had this steering current that appears to, uh, I'm talking like I'm not a meteorologist. Yeah, you sounded like well, one. I, mean, I know I'm not by any, you know better than that. But, but I have kept up with it because I want clear weather for football over the weekend, and I want clear weather for the race over the weekend, right. and I don't want things to be torn up and power to be out and people to be kind of scrambling, trying to get where it is they're trying to go on a, uh, a close of summer weekend. I know what the official calendar says, but where I come from, summer begins Memorial Day. It ends uh, on Labor Day. This is Labor Day weekend, big football weekend, and a big race weekend. And I just hope we're not digging out from under, you know, um, significant damage from the remnants of a hurricane. And I don't think we will. I, I've looked at some of the maps, obviously. I'm tracking wind speeds, rain totals. And for most of our listening area uh, for this show, it seems like four to six inches of rain is predicted Which over the course of the storm. It is. And that will certainly can create some, if it's really fast and really intense, it could obviously create some flooding and 40 mile an hour winds. Again, that's enough to cause problems. And that concerns me. Yep. <laughs> you know, because um, it seems everywhere I live, the power goes out. It, it's kind of like my life. I spend my entire life in a car in the wrong lane. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't matter where I'm going. I'm in the wrong lane. The other lane takes off as soon as I get out. Yeah. I mean, if I change lanes, you're doomed. I mean, you're screwed. You're stuck with me in traffic. And as soon as I get out of that lane, that I mean, it's like the Daytona 500. I mean, that lane just takes mm -hmm. off and... And, and, and goes crazy. Someone asked me yesterday, talking about college football, I'm going to get this straight. Someone asked me yesterday, so you're not for the NIL? I said, no, I'm for the NIL. I'm for kids getting paid some amount of money to play college football. I mean, I really am. He's a Clemson fan of mine, and now we're talking about the concerns we have. Um, he and I both agree that, that we don't have, with any degree of clarity, if it's good or bad, we just know it's different. I mean, we know it's fundamentally different. Um, I mean, the University of South Carolina quarterback can't speak to Clemson. I've heard that their guy's doing okay as well. Um, this guy actually told me he's rocking a big four-wheel drive pickup. You know, the quarterback, Cade Klubnick, I think is his name, at Clemson. Um, I told you my daughter took a picture of a $150,000 Mercedes SUV. Um, Bill Gates wasn't in town. It was the starting <laughs> quarterback for the college football team known as uh, the Gamecocks. So things are different. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, we've always suspected in certain places kids got taken care of, right? I mean, I think we've all agreed that in certain places, um, certain things happen that we really can't explain. But they happen. Um, it's going to be different now. It's above board. It, it's it's not under the table any longer. But But someone said yesterday, well, why should the university be concerned about the NIL um, when the NIL, the, the money collected by the NIL doesn't come out of the um, the university's budget? I mean, it's donor given. Rev buys tickets. Rev buys a parking spot. Somebody knocks on Rev's door and says, hey, man, you really want to win? Yeah. Well, let's give some money to the NIL, the name, image, and light. Garnet Trust, Carolina Rise, whatever, which, whichever one. I think Ipte has, excuse me, Clemson has two or three, a variety of opportunities to uh, support NIL, name, image, and likeness. So so Rev says, 
yes, I mean, I really want to win. Uh, do you want to keep this quarterback? You want to get that running back from Georgia? Uh, this kid's thinking about entering the transfer portal. Here's what we believe the market rate is for this kid. Well, none of that money comes from the university. It all comes from donors. It all comes from supporters. It all comes from a fan base. Some have a lot of money. Some don't have very much money at all. But but here's the point. Here's what the universities are concerned about. Let's say Dave Baker's got a budget of X that he's willing to give to the University of South Carolina. Clemson would be no different. University of North Carolina, NC, whatever. I mean, name your school. Georgia, doesn't matter. Um, I mean, Texas, Texas A&M. Ohio State, Michigan would be different animals. I mean, it really would. I mean, they would be, they would have the ability to do things that Clemson North South Carolina can do. And I said yesterday, and I'll stick to this, the Gamecocks and Tigers played big ball football, big boy football. Clemson's won three national championships. I mean, they are completely and totally validated. I mean, they are a big boy football program. The University of South Carolina has historically been somewhat mediocre, but they play in the Southeastern Conference. I mean, that's, I, I'm not saying well, that, that's a good reason to call them big, but they play big boy football. Look at the budgets of both of those football programs. It's among the top 25 in America. I mean, they, both of those universities have made a big commitment to college football, but they can't make anywhere near as big a commitment as Texas, Texas A&M, Southern Cal, uh, Michigan, Ohio State. They just can't. Why? They just can't. I mean, I, you know, I can't buy Google. Why? I just can't. I don't have enough money. So the Gamecocks and Tigers can't keep up with Texas, Texas A&M, Ohio State, Michigan, huge universities, very affluent fan bases, um, just access to a lot of money. Up through the ground come a bubbling cruise. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that that's kind oh, yeah. of the story with, with A&M and, uh, in Texas. Up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Yep. Um, the Clampets uh, don't live in Columbia. They don't live in Greenville. They live in... In, in Dallas or Houston or Austin or El Paso or somewhere down in the uh, in the uh, in the state of Texas, but here's where it gets a little funky, and here's where the universities are concerned, and here's where I think you're going to have somewhat of a uh, a conundrum down the road. So Dave Baker is a is a booster. Baker's done well in life. Baker's got some money. Baker loves the Gamecocks, loves the Tigers. Um, Baker gives two full scholarships a year. He gets eight tickets on the 50. He's got two parking spots. I mean, he's in, you know, he's an elitist when it comes to college football. All of a sudden, the NIL comes to Baker and says, hey, man, we know you do a lot of real cool things to support the university and its athletic programs, but we also know you, you want to win in football. I mean, you'd like the women's swim team to be good. You, you, you'd kind of, you know, yeah, I mean, the women's basketball team hasn't been – nationally known I mean, they're one of the best teams in america uh baseball bat, but but really and truly you know as well as i do it's about football so so baker's got a decision to make does he continue to make that commitment to the university and fund nil or does he say to himself hey i've done pretty good but i hadn't earned that good i mean i've got to i've got to contribute nil because i want to be good in football so i'll tell you what i'm gonna do instead of giving the university of south carolina this much money I'm giving this much minus 50%, and I'm giving the other half to the NIL. Well, all of a sudden, the university's scrambling because they've got this aquatic center they're building or an equestrian team that they may be. you got to buy horse feed for these, uh, you know, the, these, uh, these horses on the equestrian uh, program. And, and I just think that's where the universities f- will find themselves eventually when, when, when its donor base says, I want to be good at football more than anything in this world. And I don't believe by my giving money to the university 
directly affects or impacts the football team as much as I give to the NIL. And the university is going to see a significant decline in contributions or they're not going to be good in football. And it's kind of what came first, chicken or the egg. You know, the university will come to see Baker and say, hey, man, um, we've got to have this money in the university's athletic coffers because we got to build, you know, we got to improve the stadium. We, we got to we got to build, be well-rounded. We got to be good in Olympic sports. We got to build dorms and all these other sorts of things. And if you stop giving us that money, then we're not going to be as highly competitive in these other sports. But Baker under his breath is saying, I love you, Ray Tanner, but, but I, you know, I don't much care about these other sports. I want to be good at football. So I'm just writing you a check for half what I normally do, and I'm giving the other half to the NIL because they're going out compete with Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Tennessee to get these really good players. That's where I think we end up. And I think the universities need to get accustomed to having haircuts on the amount of money uh, when, when they go to see these. Because nobody has – well, I mean, I say nobody. I guess a handful of folks have unlimited funds. The majority of people have budgets. Some people's budgets are bigger – uh, than others, but I, I just think that's where we're headed, and I think we're headed there warp speed. I mean, I really do uh, believe that, and it's interesting. Rev and I were with uh, speaking to somebody yesterday who's involved in, in in some of these athletics and NILs and whatnot, and he's talking about you know the 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 politicians are getting involved in it now, trying to reform NIL before it really gets started. Well, I mean, do you believe the politicians are getting involved to help the kid or help the university? I mean, we really go back to lobbying. Mm-hmm. and special interest. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. The NCAA just hired as his chief executive officer, former president of a university. I mean, do you think he's going to Washington? I mean, he's a former governor. He's a former governor of some state in the, uh, it might be Massachusetts. I think it is the former governor of Massachusetts that the NCAA has hired as their new CEO. I mean, when he goes to Washington, do you think he's going to Washington to say, hey, the institution of higher education will be fine. Let's make sure these kids are taken care of. Let's make sure we adequately fund the NIL so these kids will always have abundant opportunities to, um, to you know, to, 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 to earn their keep on the, on the grid. No. I mean, he's going to Washington to secure the, the, the financing of the universities at the expense of the NIL. And that's just, it's an interesting phenomenon i've said it a million times i'll say it a million one and then i'll shut up had the ncaa given an inch they would not be forced to give a mile i mean that's kind of what it really and truly all boils down to but when ed o'bannon sued to 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 be compensated for his name image and likeness i mean imagine this imagine a kid playing college basketball at ucla they use his likeness on a video game ucla gets the money he doesn't I mean, where's the? There's no, there's no right in that. I mean, come on, we know better uh, than that. But, but when O'Bannon's lawyer basically reached out to UCLA or the NCAA and said, "Hey, something's wrong here," the NCAA said, "Take a walk, take a hike. We'll see you later." Yeah, you know the rules. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're fortunate to be able to play basketball at one of our esteemed member institutions, and he won the lawsuit, and that's when the world changed. And it's just going to be. It's, I'm going to be so interested. And as a college football fan, all my life, I'm going to be so interested at what the fans' reactions are to teams that you expect to be pretty good but aren't. As long as you're winning, I would imagine everything's okay. It's a little bit in business. Revenue hides a lot of mistakes. I mean, I always knew in, in business. I mean, you, 
Is it a well-run business? I don't know, man, but we're, we're, revenues are crazy, you know, and then the revenues aren't as good as they were, and it proves how, you know, well you're running your business or not. Well, I think, you know, we, we, we're going to see similar things to that in college football. If you're winning, no fan will much care what the quarterback's getting paid or what the running back is getting paid or what the defensive tackle is getting paid. But all of a sudden, you expect it to be 9-3, and three, you're 4-8, and eight. The wheels kind of came off at midseason. I got to believe fan bases with a bourbon in their hand at a tailgater going, kids making $250,000 a year and doesn't have but one sack. You're going to look at them as if they're mm-hmm. professional um, athletes. And, you know, you go to the game. How many times has somebody stood up and said, don't criticize these players. They're kids. You know, they're amateurs. They're kids. They're doing the best they can. Well, yeah, they're doing the best they can. And they're driving a $150,000 Mercedes SUV. Turn around and shut up. I'm a boo if I want to boo. You know, I'll stop contributing if I want to stop contributing. I just think it's going to be a bigger and larger and more obvious case of the haves and the have-nots. Parity is out of the window. It's um the NCAA in college football's problem is it's never become socialist like, like the like the NFL has. What do I mean by socialist? The worst team drafts first. But the NCAA, excuse me, the, the NFL desires parity. They want every fan base to believe their team has a chance to be competitive. So if you suck for two or three years, you get a chance to take the first, you know, the first two or three or four players in the college draft and build a program that be, or build a team, not a program in the NFL, be build a team organization that be, can be um, competitive. So this is the first year that we're starting college football with what I call full-fledged denial. I mean, we know that kids at Clemson are being paid. We know that kids at Carolina are being paid. We know that kids at Georgia are being paid. Last year, we were wondering. We're kind of catching up. I hear he's getting this. I hear he's getting that. No, well, this year, we kind of know. I mean, we've got a year under our belt, you know, to kind of review. And I'm just wondering what – I mean, the, the fan bases I'm most inter- interested in, obviously, are the Gamecocks and Tigers. And what will be their reaction if they, you know, lay an egg or two or three early in the season – and start saying, well, this, you know, we're paying this kid too much money. What well, what do you do to that, Rev? What what do you do when you you've already made a deal with a kid and he's not as good as you thought he was, but you're paying him a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year <laughs> and he's just not very good. Mm. Anyway, you, you it's have just, a deal. Yeah, it, it's um it's the new wild, wild is. west. 843-661-0937. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 843 of all, I, I read a Pew number yesterday. Pew Research did a poll or did some, some, some data gathering, not a poll necessarily, but some data gathering. 10% of all Twitter users produce 92% of all tweets. 69% of those prolific users are liberal Democrats. That's kind of an interesting, the Twitter sphere is not the normal world. It's not the real world. It's a reflection of, you know, people who love to express their opinions. I mean, it's a medium that people are allowed to express their opinions, uh, but it's not a, a, an accurate representation of what's kicking around out there. We discussed yesterday, uh, and I tried to do some reading on it yesterday afternoon, is Donald Trump doing better with African Americans? I got to believe the answer is yes. I want to tell you why I believe the answer is yes. Okay. Because National Review had a story saying that Trump's not doing as well with college-educated white voters as he did in 16 or 20. So when the National Review 
which is kind of the, um, I mean, it would be one of the, the holdouts of neoconservatism. Um, in fact, the National Review editorial board had a podcast over the weekend, and they basically said that DeSantis and Nikki Haley had a better chance of winning the Republican primary than um, Trump, to which Dave Baker um, <laughs> commented, delusional, period. Sincere, question mark, I have no clue. I mean, it's delusional to believe. Now, I'm not saying it's inevitable. Nobody's saying that Trump's guaranteed to win the nomination, but to argue he's not the front runner and the prohibitive favorite, to argue he's not more likely than not to be um, the nominee, but these guys tie themselves in knots trying to convince you know one another that Trump is not the perennial front runner. He's not uh, the inevitable nominee. Once again, I don't have any idea about the inevitability or not because we've got indictments, we've got trials. I don't have any idea how that plays itself out. I do know that as he was indicted, his sport intensified. As he was, you know, um, arraigned and and brought into these courtrooms, he didn't see any, I I think he saw a little bit this week, but I think the majority of that was not being at the debate. Trump's a bit of a, a, you perceive Trump to be a fighter, so he doesn't take a pass on a fight. And when he takes a pass on a fight, there's a chance that people, you know, don't like that. And I think the, the, the little, he had a little bit of a decline in the polls. They're saying 6%. It's not. I mean, I read the data. It's about 3%. But he had about a 3% decline. Haley moved up about 1.5%. DeSantis bumped up about 1%. I still believe, I said it yesterday, this is DeSantis's moment. Um, As bad as this sounds, God forgive me, having a Category 4 hurricane in the middle of a presidential campaign and you are somewhat of a competent technocrat might be your only chance. There's nothing Ron DeSantis can do to prove to voters he's likable or relatable, but he can remind them how competent he is and how well he governs under fire. I mean, isn't that kind of why, he, I mean, isn't that, in, in all honesty, the way he built his name and his sure, brand sure. and his reputation? So, so a Category 4 hurricane is going to hit his state. He's going to be on the job. Um, he's going to probably have things, I mean, it, more likely than not, DeSantis will do a good job. I think we could agree to that. Um and that could be his moment to remind voters, you know, you got one guy who's a risky bet. I mean, let, let's level with you. You know, as, as much as I respect Donald Trump, and I'm talking if I were DeSantis, as much as I respect what the former president has done uh, in the betterment of America and the working class, that's a high risk. You've got indictments. You've got trials. You've got, you know, um, you've got a lot of things that we, 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 we can't deny. I mean, they're, they're real. And you've got me. And I'm going to prove to you how competent I am. I'm going to prove to you how well I govern. Um, that, that's kind of the, it, to me, it's his, it, I mean, this is his moment. Will, will he excel? Will, will the media give him the credit that he deserves if he does excel? I, I don't know. But if he doesn't, it's it. I mean, he's done. There's no other, I mean, if he can't shine in this moment and can't accelerate his campaign in this moment, he just can't rival Donald Trump. I mean, it was never, it just it was never meant to be. Um, but I want to go back to the African-American vote because I found this interesting. So the National Review ran a story saying that Trump is losing support amongst white college-educated voters. Well, to me, that's just a, that's kind of a response to him gaining support in the African-American community. And the statistic that a lot of people are really depending on and, and sinking their teeth in, Joe Biden's support amongst African-Americans has gone from 81 to 61%.
we're making a mistake in believing that translate to votes. I mean, there is no precedent there. We know that Trump did a little better with African-American men. I think he'll do even better this time with African-American men. But the poll that says Biden is losing support of African-Americans doesn't correlate directly to voting for Trump. We don't know the answer to that question. Um, That's a big question, and the answer is extremely important. I mean, if Trump goes from, I mean, if Trump gains 20% of the African-American vote, it's going to be hard to beat him. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens with a white, you know, with with a white um, college-educated uh, voter, but I—that's that, that's kind of an outlier. I mean, some of that polling is is an outlier. The the fundamental question that I think we're asking ourselves today about the presidential campaign. I mean, there's a story of the moment. That there's a story today, and a story tomorrow, and a story the next day. The story right now is African American voters and Donald Trump. I mean, to me, that is an interesting um, story. I said yesterday, and um, and someone actually came up to me yesterday at the gym and said, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, you know, that there was a day that we had a water cooler for blacks and a water cooler for whites and a school for blacks and a school for whites. And, you know, um, whites enjoyed certain amenities to life that blacks didn't. Uh, we, we've addressed that as well as any nation ever has. I don't think we've got it perfect. I think racism exists. I think there's still things to always try and make better in a nation. But when an African-American goes to the grocery store, when a working-class African-American goes to the grocery store, and stands in line with a working-class white American, there's not two sets of prices. I mean, inflation doesn't affect one one way and another another way. Uh, when, an, when an African-American sits in a drive-through line at a you know at a fast-food restaurant, and the lady in the uh, in the window says that'll be eleven forty-three. Uh, I mean, they don't say when you make your order, are you black or are you white or are you Hispanic? Inflation kicks everybody's ass. I mean, it does. It really and truly does. Um, and, and if you have a lot of money, you're still getting kicked in the butt. I mean, the money you have is worth less than it was prior to Biden becoming president. Uh, I'm not blaming Biden for everything. I think Trump did a lousy job at addressing uh, the debt and the permanent expansion of money supply and the, the refusal to address Medicare, Medicaid, you know, um, Social Security in any meaningful fashion. But but I, when, when, when Biden's the president and things get real expensive, they don't get real expensive for Republican voters. They get real expensive for everybody. And I think, you know, when you say, hey, let me talk to you about, take take a white working class man and a black working class man, they walk in the studio and, and, and you say to them, hey, let me tell you about the permanent expansion of money supply. Let me tell you about macroeconomic stimulus. The, the two of them, I don't have time to fool with you. I don't have time to mess with you. I just know things are much more expensive today than they were when Donald Trump was president. And you add that with, you know, and this is a perception. I said it yesterday. There's a perception in the African-American community that African-American men are more likely to be targeted by law enforcement. I'm not saying they are or are not. Perception is reality. Read Sam Walton's book. I mean, when you go to Walmart that they're cheaper on about 30% of the items, but the perception is they're cheaper on everything. Why? They manufacture that perception. That perception sells. Perception becomes reality. So I'm not saying it's real that law enforcement does this, but there's a perception in the African-American community that, you know, DWB is real. 
And that is, in their opinion, African-American communities believe that that is unfair, that they're being persecuted unfairly. And when they see Trump and they see four indictments and they understand RICO, or excuse me, they don't understand RICO and they don't understand so some of the uh, constitutionalities or not of uh, the indictment, treason and bribery, you know, they're like, wow, man. I mean, I can kind of relate to that. I can kind of relate to that. I mean, that, that guy's kind of a, um, I mean, he's being unfairly treated. And I've always felt that I was unfairly treated. And there's some kindred spirit there. I'm not saying there is. I'm saying the perception of that is. And, you know, we'll see uh, when we vote how that works itself out. But right now, it looks to me like Donald Trump does have uh, a little more support amongst African Americans than Republicans historically have had. Does that translate in November? Don't know. Um, here would be an interesting story. What percentage of African Americans will vote in the Republican primary? Um, that that would be an, a very interesting story. South Carolina would be a good case study. Um, but there are not a lot of African Americans in Iowa. There are not a lot of African Americans in New Hampshire. Um, but there are in South Carolina. So when you get to South Carolina in the Republican primary, what is the percentage of African Americans who vote as um, juxtaposed historical averages? We don't know the answer to that. And, and, and it's so interesting to me how many people on Twitter and, uh, you know, some of these podcasts I watch and some of these uh, media outlets, some of these websites I, you know, try to read and prepare for the radio show, they're sure of this. They're sure of that. I mean, I, I think I may be the only guy in town that says there, there are some things I'm sure about, but most things I'm not. I'm not at all sure what this um, this apparent energy does in translation to Trump support amongst African-Americans. It seems that African-Americans are frustrated by the economic conditions of today, and they've been convinced it was better when Trump was president. Gas was $2 a gallon, not $4 a gallon, or three fifty a gallon. Um, man, gas is volatile now. I mean, it's up and down 30 cent, 25 cent. I'm talking about from Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can go from 317 to 350, back to 320, back to 349, uh, back to 317. A lot of this is crude draws and projections. The majority of, I mean, when you look at the crude draws and projections, and you got this margin, how much does the world produce? How much does the world consume? Um, that hadn't changed a lot. The biggest difference in in the price of oil and gas today is the lack of investment and in, in, in refining infrastructure and the lack of it. And I'm talking about building refineries. I'm talking about investing in improving and making more efficient because the federal government has basically declared world fossil fuels. So if you're in the energy business, and there's a you know a billion dollars worth of um, improvements you can make to this refinery to uh, produce more you know convert more barrels of oil to gallons of gasoline, but but you're thinking about wow but the government says they don't in ten years we're not going to burn any of this gasoline you don't invest a billion dollars in a refinery knowing that you know the federal government makes all the rules and they've strongly suggested that you know they're going to make your product obsolete I mean you you may go to the corner store and buy a hundred dollar nut you know, to put on a bolt to fix things for, for the time being, but you don't make a billion-dollar investment when your time frame is only 10 years. Uh, now, I don't buy that, but but that's what the government says is going to happen, and those businesses are reacting accordingly. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 
843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Matt in Florence. Good morning, Matt. You're on. Hey, guys. Good morning. Um, I, I was just calling about uh, the last segment. You are talking about uh, uh, the, the Trump deal. And, and here's, here's my thoughts on it. Um, I have my own personal feelings about Donald Trump, but I, I feel like what's happening to him is like it's like Spanish Inquisition, Salem witch hunt type stuff, like what they're doing to him. It's that raw. Um, but there's two schools of thought on this. Either one, people hated him so much that they made an incompetent buffoon like Joe Biden, the president. Or two, voter fraud was so rampant and people hated him so much that they were willing to commit felonies to make sure that he didn't get into office. I mean, those are really the only two schools of thought that are available right now. Um, and I, I think Trump derangement syndrome is a real thing. But I also think Trump support syndrome, uh, where people are willing to stick with this man through thick and thin, is also a thing um, that we need to kind of look at. I just I don't see how the math adds up. Like, I don't believe Donald Trump did anything wrong. I don't. I believe these uh, indictments are complete BS. Um, but I don't see how that's going to strengthen any sort of support. I, I just don't see it. I mean, I have my own grievances about Donald Trump. You guys know that I'm a big, firm supporter of the Second Amendment. And whenever he did the bump stock thing, I was off. I'm off the Trump train whenever that sort of thing happens. I don't have a lot of things that I'm steadfast on, but that's one of them. Um, so I don't can my question is you know what changes uh, what what has changed to where this is the only guy in the whole wide world that can do things the way we need them done and we have to ride or die with him and that's the only way we can get to the promised land I don't see how this is a winning equation. Thank you, Matt. That that's such an interesting proposition. Um, you know we accuse and I'm talking about Trumpsters accuse and I'm a sometimes Trumper. I'm a most times Trumper. I mean, I'm not an always Trumper. I'm certainly not a never Trumper. Um, I'm critical of things that, you know, he makes it harder on himself than he should. I mean, he, he you know, he says these things that are divisive when unnecessary. I think at times leadership requires you to be divisive and, and, and strongly opinionated and, and lead in this direction, no matter which way the tide's going. But But Trump's the kind of guy that, Donald, you can stream, you can swim downstream. It's okay. I'd rather swim upstream. I mean, I'd rather swim upstream. And I think we at times get caught up in that. I think Matt's point is very appropriate. If there is such a thing as Trump derangement syndrome, isn't there an irrationale to Trump loyalty syndrome? I mean, isn't that fair? I mean, you know, I catch myself at times being emotionally invested in defending him when he probably doesn't deserve to be defended. I mean, he says something that I'm like, wow, dude, I mean, that's crazy to say that. But because of all the other hysteria surrounding the opposition to Trump, I feel the need to to kind of, you know, um, forsake my internal belief and defend Donald Trump. So I think Matt is exactly right. I think we have to be very honest with ourselves. Um. Was it Larry early? I keep talking about Larry this week for some reason. Larry earlier this week or, or toward the end of last week said, you know, um, I don't feel like they've left me an option. I mean, as much as I'd like to consider, you know, Haley or Ramaswamy or whomever, I mean, whatever the flavor of, of your proclivities are, you, you, you feel almost obligated because you don't feel like you're simply voting for a candidate 
but rather uh, you want to be a part of something that's much bigger than than Donald Trump. And if I'm voting for Ramaswamy, I'm not voting for that 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 central theory that I believe. Um, and really and truly, it goes back down to um, you know the social norms are falling apart. Um, conspiracy theories are becoming far more commonplace. I mean, there, there are a lot of precedents here. Maybe there's not an American president that has ever behaved like Donald Trump. We know there's never been one indicted, much less indicted four times. But but I think Trump's, Trump's existence could not happen if some of these social norms weren't falling apart. If some of the, the things that we've historically trusted in weren't in such decline and disarray. In other words, you know, has Trump did Trump do that to the um, the FBI, the 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 DOJ? I mean, I'm thinking about those two in particular. Uh, you know, FBI answers to DOJ. DOJ has an attorney general who answers answers to the president. That's how that food chain um, works. But but would Trump could Trump be viable in a world where people had a normal degree of support or trust of these government agencies? Or, or is he kind of a byproduct of that? In other words, I don't trust DOJ and the FBI. Therefore, I'm going to find a guy that is somewhat disruptive and may tear this thing uh, apart. I mean, what came first, chicken or or the egg? But but I think Matt brings up a very valid point. I think those of you who are just 100% loyal to Trump under any situation, under any circumstance, you believe he does no wrong. He can't be second-guessed. Um, how dare you question you know, what Trump said, don't you know they're after him? Well, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive on one another. I think Trump can be wrong on some things, and they still be after him in such an aggressive fashion. 843-661-0937, back in a few. I want to get off the beaten path just a couple of minutes and get someone's opinion or get your opinion to this, Rev. I want you to help me walk through this, this scenario. So we've got a Category 4 hurricane hitting the Big Bend Panhandle area of Florida, it will eventually make its way into the Carolinas. Um, we think that Andrew Dockery will be with us at around 730 to update us on what we can expect from this storm. But let's 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 go down this road for just a couple of minutes and uh, and see where we end up. So let's let's say we know that the coast of South Carolina has enjoyed unbelievable growth. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. When you look at uh, the benefit of that area to the state of South Carolina. I'm talking about um, tourism. I'm talking about gas tax revenue. I'm talking about one-third of the building permits issued in all of the state in the last two years was in Horry County. Um, there's a burning desire that people have to live near an ocean. I get a packet in the mail from FEMA. It's my flood insurance. And FEMA says, thank you for choosing us. And I'm saying, well, who else could I have chosen? <laughs> <laughs> You know, the government subsidizes, underwrites the, the flood insurance along the coast. In essence, the taxpayer subsidizes the, the, the underwriting of property along the coast um, because insurance companies just say, I don't want the risk. I mean, I can't afford the risk. It, it's just far too risky. What, what, what are the claims associated with the panhandle of Florida? We don't know. I mean, it'll be, here's where I'm going, guys. Let's say that the climate change hysteria. I mean, I think the climate is changing. I think the ocean is rising. I have no idea at all how much man is contributing. But there are people who have been around the Grand Strand all of their lives, and they see things, and it's visual, and it's obvious to them that the ocean is rising. Now, once again, the majority of these people will say, I think Al Gore's a nut. 
I think John Kerry is trying to capitalize financially on selling a bill of goods to the American people. But, but the point I'm making is one of the one of the most beneficial parts of South Carolina could be uninsurable at some point in time. And when people start making risk-reward calculus, let, let's hypothetically say that the, the, the fear of climate change forces insurance companies to say, I don't want any more of that market. Does the government further subsidize or do people buy homes knowing they can't have insurance? Does the bank loan money to a homeowner at the beach for a million dollars, two million dollars? I mean, it's not uncommon at all to see two million dollar homes on the Grand Strand. Maybe not in Myrtle Beach, but but down toward the South End and Charleston in particular. I mean, it's two million, three million, four million dollars, and the taxpayer, you know, m- making average income is subsidizing in some way, shape, or form the cost of insurance on that property. But let's say. The, um, the hyperbole of climate change continues and people get freaked out about what the costs are going to be to insure these properties along the coast. Is there, uh, is there a fundamental reset of the marketplace? In, in other words, would, would someone who is doing extremely well financially buy a home on the ocean in South Carolina knowing they can't get it insured? What, what, if, what if insurance is more than the, the mortgage? Does the bank, I, I just think, I mean, we, we talk about climate change and we're talking about, you know, the public buying into climate change. A lot of Americans believe that man is contributing. And if we don't do these things that, that I think, I mean, I, I don't buy that, but, but I do believe the climate is changing. I think we're in a cyclical period of the ocean rising. I think we built homes where there probably should not have been homes built. Can we agree to that? Sure. I mean, I, I think yeah. we, I think we've insulted God's plan to some degree by knocking down sand dunes and sea oats and building houses in places. And I'm not talking about huts. I'm talking about, I'm talking about multi-million dollar, you know, waterfront homes, both on the waterway and, and on the ocean. What is the, uh, what, what is the business concern moving forward? I mean, I'm not saying we're having more frequent hurricanes. I, I'm not arguing that, but, but I'm arguing what if the insurance industry and what if the real estate industry buy into the extreme climate change that John Kerry and Al Gore are selling, and you know the um, the glaciers will melt, the the ocean fronts will change. Um, what happens to that part of South Carolina if some people begin to believe, um, you know, the bill of goods being sold by John Kerry and Al Gore? I'm using those two as an example. I mean, Goldman Sachs and and J.P. Morgan. I mean, they'll move the meter a lot more than. Citibank and you know some of these huge banks that have enormous lending portfolios. What what happens there? I I don't have any idea. I'll ask Dave Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, would you buy a two million dollar home on the ocean if you couldn't get insurance? I don't see how you could. Would you buy a two million dollar home on the ocean if insurance cost you fifty thousand dollars a year? <laughs> well, I guess if I'm buying an uh, an oceanfront home, maybe I could afford that, but it doesn't make a lot of financial If you're sense. running an insurance company, if you're the CEO of an insurance company, and the government gets out of the subsidy business, and the government says, hey, we can't do that anymore. I mean, let, let's say conservatives take control, and, and there's a kind of a libertarian bias about this, and, and we talk about, you know, um, income inequality. Well, I mean, that, that furthers, that exacerbates income inequality. Um, you got people who can afford a $2 million home at the beach, 
but they're getting a haircut on their insurance because the taxpayers subsidizing through FEMA and the federal flood insurance programs. What, what, what happens if that changes? Um, and I, th- I think extreme climate change is a part of this because people are freaking out. I'm not. I mean, I accept it as cyclical. But but I I don't have any I mean I I don't have any proof that I'm you know right or wrong. Uh, you've got somebody in this corner saying climate is changing and the reason it's changing is man's emitting too much carbon. You've got me in this corner saying the climate's changing and a damn thing we can do about it. But but there's a financial reality, and and it's not a half million dollar home on a sand dune anymore. It's a two million dollar castle sitting you know a uh, hundred yards from the ocean, and you know you you know as well as I do that we have built homes along the coast where we probably should not have built homes. W- what is the financial, uh, uh, you know, adjustment made uh, if if all of a sudden conservatives take over the government, begin looking at the flood insurance program and say, you know, we can't t- ask the average taxpayer to subsidize what it costs to insure a $2 million home owned by somebody making a million dollars a year. I mean, where's the justice in that? But it's a big part of South Carolina's economy. It's a huge part of South Carolina's economy. And I think there are, I mean, I don't know where we go from here, but but we're going to talk to Jamie Arnold in about 30 minutes, and he's going to talk about, he'll probably talk a little bit about storm surge. He'll probably talk a little bit about, you know, the wind effect. Um, but we're kind of getting backdoored, you know, with this storm. It's not going to have the usual storm surge effect. But um, but but th- there's a financial reality there. That, that I think a homeowner is going to have to make a decision. The government's going to have to make a decision. Insurance companies are going to have to make a decision. Banks are going to have to, to make a decision probably sooner than later. I mean, I think in the next 10 or 15 years, that business model will change. I'm not saying it's inverted. I'm not saying the government gets completely out of that business. But I get a packet yesterday from FEMA. And, and once again, I rev laugh when I said it. It said, thank you for choosing us. Well, I had no choice. You have a choice. <laughs> right? You're the only show in town. Either, <laughs> either you do it or nobody does because insurance companies have made a decision. It's just not worth the risk. And what I tend to believe is this, because I thought about this a little bit. I've read stories where certain insurance companies have pulled out of Florida, for example. They've got a lot of coastal area, obviously, the entire it's state. It's too risky. Surrounded, and it just doesn't make financial sense for the insurance company. And I believe knowing government's tendency to grow and want to control more things. I mean, I just naturally thought, well, of course, the government will step in and there'll be more programs, there'll be subsidies, they'll be they'll get into the insurance business a lot they, more. They'll fund the marketplace of insurance. And for, but I think some of this is driven by the climate change extremists. And I didn't think about it from that and, angle. And the narrative, right. you know, every time you turn a, a new show on, they're talking about glaciers, glaciers and polar bears and ocean fronts and you know, where, where the water used to be and where it is now and all these other. And, and, and we're directly affected by that because the coast of South Carolina is, is a treasure. I mean, it is. It's a, it's a very productive asset for this entire state, whether you live in Gaffney, Greenville, Aiken, Anderson, doesn't matter. The revenue generated along our coast makes life better for all South Carolinians. Let's go to the phone. Rick and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Um, you mentioned, though, taking a free market libertarian point of view if conservatives take over. Well, a lot of these programs, I would say, are actually put forward by conservative to maintain the value. Because if a home on the coast worth $2 million becomes uninsurable, at that point, it loses a great percentage of its value on a free market, correct? A half. I mean, I think a $2 million home is all of a sudden worth a million. 
me too. And in order to preserve that tax base and in order to preserve the investment value of those homes, that might be the reason the government is intervening and trying to make insurance affordable and whatever. If you let the free market work, there will be a huge correction and the risk assumed in owning a home on the coast will increase a lot for somebody who owns a $4 million home, you know, down on Daniel Island. And the local government see a significant decrease in ad valorem tax. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting. those homes are perfect. A home that somebody only lives with, lives in, you know, six weeks out of the year is perfect because those guys are using less local services but they're paying local taxes. Yep, paying a high percentage, 6% instead of 4% on primary residence. Exactly. Thank you, Rick. That's kind so, of an interesting, and I don't, I mean, look, I'm just proposing this as somewhat of a conversation piece, and most people don't have a $4 million house on the ocean. Most people don't have a $2 million house on the ocean. But our coast is full of them. I mean, it's one after the other, after the other, after the other. I've I, I let it be, I frequent Litchfield Pauley's a lot. In the last 10 years, I don't know how many 2,000-square-foot old-school beach homes have been torn down, replaced by these monsters that have 10 and 12 bedrooms. I mean, they, they, you know, their rental revenue. I, I talked to a builder a month ago. I may have said this on the air. That told me the majority of homes they're building in Pauley's right now are for hedge funds. They believe there's a better investment there than there is in the stock market. I mean, they can build a 10-bedroom eight bath beach home for X millions of dollars. They can rent it the week of July 4th for $15,000 a week. And you know, so some of the off seasons are three or $4,000 a week and they can generate a better return, you know, building a home. It's a tangible asset. If you, if you, I mean, you could have a fire sale if you had to, but I think Rick, I mean, that's an interesting point. So, so if you are a local government and you run your services on, you provide the services, people have become become to expect on a ad valorem tax base, all of a sudden that's an uninsurable asset. It goes from two million to one million. What is the property tax on a million dollars compared to two? It's complicated. But but it's important to South Carolina. It's kind of in our backyard. And our coast is a huge part of our economy. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hi Larry. Good morning. I'm gonna try not to get too wonky. To, to Rick's call, I'm gonna say yeah, but, and you kind of started to make my point, a 12-bedroom home is not built for occupancy year-round. In other words, it's not going to be anybody's primary residence. It's and a personal hotel, homes, Larry. Would you agree to that? That's right. Yeah, and, and you value those residences based on the amount of income that they can generate. So if, if you, let me ask you this, have you ever stayed in an Airbnb? Yes. Did you call and ask the owner if they had homeowner's insurance before you stayed there? <laughs> I never have. <laughs> no, because it doesn't matter to you as a tenant. If you burn the place down, you burn the place down, and you hope they're insured. So you pay what you pay. So the, the rate is the rate. And so when I'm thinking about building a $1.9 million home to generate $15,000 a week at a, at a resort area for 20 weeks out of the year, I'm, I'm deciding whether or not it's a good investment based on the income it generates. Now, I do consider the cost of insurance as, as part of my expense structure, but, but I got news for you. If the expense is zero because I can't get insurance, but people are still willing to pay $15,000 a week, I may still be tempted to build that building and self-insure. 
it just means I won't make quite as much money. So I don't know that it, it I don't know that it cuts it in half. I don't know that it takes it down to some ridiculously low number. Now, who will be where the impact would really come would be people who own second homes that they do not rent out. That you know maybe they live in them six months out of the year and they don't rent them at all. I mean they're very wealthy, and there are plenty of those homes too, though probably not as many as the kind we're talking about. But in terms of your tax base, uh, if something like that happens, you have to remember that 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 the counties only revalue the properties once every five years. So if in year two of an assessment period, all those people lose their insurers and the properties are negatively impacted, it won't do a thing to the tax base because those those numbers won't change unless they sell those properties and they have to be revalued pursuant to the sale. There, there won't be a, a change in the tax base and as soon as the the next reassessment period comes around, the part that people forget is there's an equalization as well as a reassessment. So the tax burden is redistributed across all the properties in that county. So it's not so much that the county will lose the revenue as it will everybody else will pick up the slack. Larry, so what would happen? I, I, okay, let me ask you this. You, you would be the person to ask. Um, and this is hypothetical. You don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. But let, let's speculate for a second. What if the major insurance carriers in America said about the coast of South Carolina, the same thing they said about Florida, too risky. We're not going to insure any pro any property in Georgetown or Horry, Charleston County um, ever again. What what happens to the marketplace? Um, well, I believe that someone would come in and try to fill that void at some price. And, and, and to Rick's point, he's right. It would, it would take the, 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 the amount of money that is invested in those buildings down. It would have to, because you would you'd, you'd be crazy to spend four million dollars on an asset that could get washed away. Well, you're year. assuming you're assuming a lot more risk. Yeah, you would be. But so so in my opinion, what would happen is only hedge funds, only huge developers, only people who could afford to self-insure would be the groups that would come down there and they would be they would be dictating prices they would be the price makers and they would say look we can take on this risk but not at these prices so yeah it would have a a negative impact on pricing but if you don't own one of those properties that's really not your concern the thing that that the only thing that i would be concerned with is if you know i owned a condo in a large condo unit and the hoa handled the insurance and next year they say, oh, we lost our insurance carrier, so we're going to put an assessment on all of the condo units. Y'all are going to have to pay an extra $5,000 a year so that we can self-insure. Um, you know, that, that'll get in your pocket. But if you don't own a piece of property that's at risk, the only risk that you've got as a general taxpayer in that county would be that you may pay proportionately a slightly higher tax at the next reassessment as they redistribute that loss of tax base back across the county so you know you're paying twelve hundred dollars a year now for your primary residence and now it goes up to thirteen twenty five so 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 are we wasting our time or should the leadership in Ori, georgetown and charleston county be thinking about what could happen if this extreme climate change becomes more of the mainstream narrative i don't know that there's anything that they can do I, now maybe in columbia we could begin to write legislation that either makes it easier, uh, you know, for for 
other insurers to come in or to allow policies that maybe cover everything but wind damage so that if you do accidentally burn your property down, you don't suffer because you're in a hurricane zone. You know, so so I think maybe it would be more on the legislative side than it would be at the local level. Maybe at the state level, the director of insurance and those folks might need to look at ways to make it possible to have some sort of coverage for those properties so that it doesn't have as big a negative effect. Because the, if, if you don't have if you don't have wind damage, that's one thing. But if you don't have coverage at all, that's another. Correct. Thank you, Larry. You appreciate it, my man. It's just kind of a hypothetical. I mean, you know, I don't know. If, if we're going to be forced down that road. But but I do know there is a lot of conversation about climate change. I mean, I read last night this storm about to hit Florida. I mean, it would have never happened if we didn't burn fossil fuel. I mean, you know, the, the wildfires in Florida, the the polar bears in, you know, in, 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 in the um, the Antarctica. I mean, it's, it, none of this would have ever happened. We didn't have these crazy weather phenomenons uh, until man decided to abuse the planet as man has decided to be. I mean, I don't buy that, guys, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of financial decisions based on hyperbole. I mean, that there is. And if the hyperbole is pervasive and it becomes mainstream, people who have a lot to gain or lose are going to start kind of monitoring their decisions more closely. And is there a scenario on the coast of South Carolina where the major insurance carriers say, thank you, but no thank you? I mean, it's been a lucrative market. But we've decided the risk just is not worth, or the reward is not worth uh, the risk. Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. Just had a text from a hedge fund guy. I said, I'll sponsor your show if you'll run all the- <laughs> <I'm-> <laughs> really? Let- Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Bob in Florence. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, just got back from Myrtle Beach putting the uh, patio furniture up. Um one one thing uh, that's, that's obvious with the property down there. Now we own a place that's in a high-rise concrete and steel uh, resort, so we're not too concerned about it. There, place has been there for forty some years, been through a lot of storms. But I'm with you, Ken. I, we see a lot where we're up on the northern end of Myrtle Beach. We see a lot of uh, multi-million-dollar homes being built right on the water which is, is baffling to me, uh, where they're getting insured from. Um, the, the big thing about the beach is it, it, the ocean level may be rising or it may appear to be rising because um, over the last, what, uh, 75, 80 years, we've, we've dammed up, dammed up all, almost all the major rivers that poured into the Atlantic. And when you dam them up, uh, they drop their sediment behind the dams, and uh, most of the sediment doesn't make it to the ocean anymore. So back in olden times, the beaches naturally renourished themselves because there was just tremendous flow of sand and sediment that came out of our rivers and streams. That's that's one thing that's problematic, and that's why we're having to renourish the beaches. But yesterday, we decided for giggles to coming home. We went down 22 to. Um, um, uh, 501, and then uh, at Gallimans Fair, right after you got to Gallimans Fair, you can hit Highway 41 and and head south. So we decided, let's go down. We hadn't been on that road in a while, so we went down there. Ken, do you know that they've laid underground utilities all the way down Highway 41 uh, to where it hits 378? Now, 
that's cow country out in there. That's soybeans, cotton, corn, and cow country. Uh, but they're laying underground utilities. And, and recent trips I've taken to Charleston, I've gone down 41 through Johnsonville, Hemingway that way, uh, and, and just towards Somerville. And they've also, they've laid underground utilities all the way to the Francis Marion National Forest. So you think about that, and it's, well, why would you do that? Uh, unless you thought that's where development was going to go. Um, so it's probably going to be like, end up being like Florida, where you've got this massive amount of people that have, have moved inland, but the state of South Carolina is going to have to devise a way to, to quickly transport people to and from the beach so that you can live inland. But if you want to get to the beach, there's an easy way to get there and, and get back home without the risk of living right on the water. You can enjoy the water from a safe distance. So uh, uh, I, I think that's probably probably part of it. What do you think? Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I've noticed some of that same, um, some of those same things Bob's talking about. And I mean, I, you know, because of what I do, I read a lot, try to understand. And I am in, I mean, I got two partners and we do develop some property. So I have uh, somewhat of an understanding of how that works. But you, you've got it. You've got a problem along the coast of South Carolina with housing affordability. You've got uh, an abundance of economic activity. You've got tourism. You've got, you know, I mean, in Charleston in particular, it's become somewhat of an eclectic international city. Georgetown, already not as much, but it's still as fast a growing area as there is in America. And, and when you've got a limited number of homes, limited number of amount of construction, and you've got an abundance of people wanting to live there, what does it do? It distorts supply and demand. Homes become more expensive. And the pay of a teacher or a law enforcement agent or a construction worker does not increase uh, to keep up with the cost of, of housing in some of these uh, desirable areas. So you start looking around, where can a teacher live? I mean, if, if, if the average price of a home, and I'm just using this as, as a, uh, you know, I don't know what the average price of a home is east of the intercoastal waterway in Ori or Georgetown County, but it's a lot more than it was. I mean, I think it's, 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 we send an extreme increase in what housing costs east of the waterway. So let's say you're a school teacher at Waccamaw High School in Pawleys Island, and you're making sixty grand a year, and you're looking around neighborhoods a mile from the school, and the houses are five hundred fifty, six hundred thousand dollars. You can't make that math work. So you've got to look somewhere else to live. Next thing you know, you're in Johnsonville. You know, you're you're you're, you're close to you're in Ainer. Uh, you, you're in some of these places, and you're like, the hell's going on in Johnsonville and Ainer? I mean, who wants to live in Johnsonville and Ainer? No slight to Johnsonville nor Ainer. I don't mean that uh, in any stretch. I mean, I'm from Pamplico. Who am I to insult, you know, Johnsonville and Ainer? I love rural America. I'd, I'd love to see rural America become more empowered and, 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 and growing and have an agenda, long-term and viable economic model. But, but I do believe that's happening all up and down the South Carolina coast. Um, you, you've got people wanting to live there. You've got all, only so many homes for sale. You're building as fast as you can build. What, what's the cost of construction? What we know what it is today. Uh, inflation has, uh, you know, what was a hundred dollars a foot now it's $170 a foot construction costs. I read something a couple of weeks back, you know, building a home on stilts in Ori or Georgetown County is about 325 to $50 a square foot. 
I mean, how does a teacher afford that? How does a, a, a city police officer afford that? How does a, a you know, someone who uh, you're providing services to that area, but you got to look somewhere else to live. And, and the next thing you know, you're, you're driving 35, 40 minutes from, you know, a Johnsonville or an Ainer to get into some of these areas that the marketplace, that the housing marketplace has become so uh, unbelievably distorted. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad problem, but it's a reality. And, and that's why I think you're seeing water and sewer investment in some of these areas that you're scratching your head going like, this place hasn't grown in 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Why are we making that big an investment in some of these areas? And I think that's why. Um, I, I know that some of these national builders, I'm not talking about uh, folks that do it on the side. I'm talking about national builders that know what they're doing and know how to sharpen their pencil and make it work. I mean, they're, they're buying property 25, 30, 35, 40 miles off the coast of South Carolina. And, the, and they don't call it workforce housing. That's a bit insulting. What do you mean I live in a workforce housing now? I don't live in a workforce housing neighborhood. I live in a 2,500-square-foot house that costs X. Yeah, but that 2,500-square-foot house in, you know, a mile or east of the, the intercoastal waterway would cost you far more than, than somebody who makes, you know, $60,000, $75,000 a year can't afford. So that's why I think you're seeing all the, um, all the growth in areas not along um, the coast of South Carolina. Do we have Andrew with us? We do. we do have WMBF meteorologist Andrew Dockery is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh man, it is a it's a busy day. We, we've seen you hustling season. on our. We got our televisions here on in the studio, and we've seen you hustling about trying to explain to the viewers what, what you expect to happen and what's happening down in Florida. Uh, I'd, I'd like for you to take a few moments and explain to our listening audience, Andrew, what you think will happen. Uh, you know, the rest of the day today and the balance of of tomorrow. Yeah, you know, the forecast kind of remains the same. There's a couple of tweaks, and there always will be uh, when you're talking the tropics. Uh, tropical storm conditions, once again, um, that extends all the way up into the PD. And really for the afternoon, uh, we'll start to see things go downhill. I do anticipate a tornado watch at some point this afternoon. How many counties will be included in that? Unsure yet, uh, but I expect that at least to come out around 3 as some of the stronger bands uh, move on shore around 3 p.m., 4 p.m., and then conditions will start to go downhill as we head toward the overnight and the evening. Um, as far as threats, really hasn't changed too much. On average, 45 to 50 mile per hour winds, uh, a little bit less as you go up north of I-95, maybe a higher gust isolated for the beaches. Um, you go into portions of rainfall, and we're going to have a heavier band north of that center. It just really dictates on where that center try us to cross out back to the Atlantic. And uh, is that going to be after us? Is that going to be um, maybe before us? And that will set up who sees the heaviest rain. Right now we do have it um, extending basically from inland Horry County all the way up to around the I-95 corridor um, with five to eight inches of rain, not anticipating river flooding, but some flash flooding in play with a flood watch also out uh, for tonight. So we've talked tornadoes, we've talked wind, um, we've also talked about that um, the rain, um, but then last, the storm surge has increased just a little bit. Um, still not expecting any major impacts like what we saw last year with Ian or Isaias, uh, but with a faster speed, uh, meaning the strongest winds come in closer maybe to 11 midnight, um, I think we will see a little bit higher of a high tide at 8 tonight. So we'll keep an eye on that once again, not expecting 
um, any widespread big-time issues. But we will see some issues as we head into the evening, and uh, it's really just going to be relaying that of what roads may be flooded or tornado warnings that are issued as we head into the afternoon and evening. Andrew, obviously, if I lived on the coast of Florida, the Panhandle, I'd be deeply concerned about a Category 2 turns into a Category 4. Does that really matter with long-term projections? In other words, a 2, a 3, a 4 hitting the coast of Florida, I'm sure you're accounting for all these other weather effects, you know, that that aren't necessarily, you know, um, coexisting with a hurricane today. But but how much does that change the modeling when a hurricane goes from a 2 to a 3 to a 4? You know, I mean, the models get a pretty good grasp on it, which we actually have the hurricane in the system out there. Um, they've done a really good job showing Category 4 landfall. Um, it looks like that's going to come in as a Category 3 landfall um, at this point any minute. So we're going to be getting that in the Big Bend area of Florida. Um, as far as the weakening, they've done a pretty good job saying it will be a stout tropical storm. What we mean by that is just high end, anywhere from 50 to 65 mile per hour winds, and that still holds true. Right now in the low country, they have it at 70 mile per hour, um, and then weakening to 60 miles per hour um, off to our northeast. Of course, remember that's like in the interior eye. Um, so the models have come a long way. Um, they continue to improve, and really, um, what you don't see on TV is all the meteorologists here looking at every model data that comes in and basically checklisting it like, oh, okay, this is a bad run, this is bad data, this one's handling it well, this is good. And we do that six to eight times a day, and we do it again the next day and the next day. So um, we have a pretty good grasp on what to expect based off what models have been performing so well. Last question. When when we look at the long-term weather forecast and we look into, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's nothing but pleasant is that is that steering force what drives the hurricane further to the east as quick as it does? I mean, I I know enough to be dangerous, and I'll readily admit I know enough to be to be dangerous. But I did look at the weather Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and it looks to be spectacular. Yeah, fantastic. Um, it's it, that in accommodation with a cold front um, off to our west that will actually be able to finally move through as that system pushes to the northeast. We'll get a cold front that will actually slide in from the northwest, and it will bring fantastic changes. Um, lower humidity, unseasonable, uh, really for this time of year. Um, mornings in the 60s, we'll look at temperatures, I think, topping out low 80s. So uh, the weekend looks great, maybe a little bit warmer on Labor Day into next week. But so far, some drier weather coming in thanks to that high pressure. Um, like you said, the steering factor um, that's off to our northwest. I think it just further proves that God loves college football. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful weekend for it. Yeah, yeah. We, we really appreciate your time, and you've been very informative, very helpful. Thank you very, very much for taking time this morning for us. Thank you all, and you all have a good one. If you need anything, let us know. Thank you. Andrew Dockery, WMBF meteorologist, kind of bringing us up to date uh, with, with kind of a local flavor on what is happening, what we expect to happen. Kind of interesting that it, 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 it didn't surprise them that it, became a category four hurricane i mean it, he said our model showed it intensifying but he did say we expected to hit land as a category three so i think there'll be a um a, you know a, a diminishing of strength to some degree as it makes its way onto uh, on the landfall 
And, I mean, we hope everybody's okay. I, I don't want to – I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be flippant here about college football and racing and whatnot. But, but obviously, we have dealt with um, direct hits of a hurricane. It ain't no fun. I mean, it's just not any fun. Um, for our, our invaders from Michigan and Ohio and New Jersey and, you know, wherever else they come from <laughs> that have invaded Invader, and invaders. taken over our, our South Carolina, yeah, the, the northern aggressors, um, it, it's not any fun to have a direct hit. It's not any fun to deal with a hurricane at all. But, but I think when you have dealt with it in the first person, there is a degree of sympathy and caring uh, that you have for those people in the panhandle of Florida because, in all honesty, their life's going to suck for the next few days. I mean, we know how it, you know, no power, hard to find food. You hope you've adequately prepared. Frustration sets in. Uh, frustration very often turns into anger. And, um, I mean, we've lived it. And, um, and I wish nothing but safety and our prayers are with the people down in the, uh, in the panhandle of Florida. But, but we think it'll be diminished significantly by the time it uh, makes its way into South Carolina. We hope we don't have widespread power outages. We hope we put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And we, we hope the Gamecocks play good on, on Saturday night. Fair enough? Let, let's be just Fair completely enough. honest. You're asking for a little much, but okay. <laughs> we, we're asking for a, uh, an inside straight. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. In the next hour, I do want to delve in. I've done this all week, and we're going to be uh, at some point, we got to be people of our word. We've said we're going to try to explain some of these, um, some of these mass requirements. Some of the, um, uh, I'll give uh, what's his name from Tennessee. He's on the five. He's a former congressman, Harold, Harold Ford. Ford. I'll give Harold Ford a little credit yesterday when he said toward the end of the show. I mean, he was not our guest, but we played a clip from the five on Fox when he said, "You know, I've had seven shots." And COVID three times. He didn't say I'd had seven vaccines. He said, I've had seven shots. Um, It's a therapeutic. It's not a vaccine. Stop calling it a vaccine. Vaccine implies immunity. If you've had seven vaccines, you don't get the disease. You've been vaccinated seven times. I mean, three times. You just don't. That's not the way vaccines work. But anyway, we've redefined marriage and woman and man. Why not redefine? I mean, vaccines should be baby crap alongside changing the definition of the word woman and man and, you know, what, what the chromosomal science says about this. Certainly we can change uh, the definition of the word vaccine. There are hospitals, there are schools, there are public buildings in several blue states that are now re-implementing mask mandates. It's required of you to wear a mask before you come into this building, another building. It will be interesting to me. If this uptick of this variant continues, how the public genuinely responds. I mean, I don't know how many people I've bumped into, good, decent, moral, not me. I mean, these are good, decent, moral, ethical people. <laughs> and they say, I ain't doing it again. I'm just not wearing it again. I'm not, I'm under no circumstance am I wearing that mask again. What do you mean under no circumstance? If, you're, if your daughter has, uh, you know, a, a car wreck and she's in the hospital and the hospital doesn't let you go see your daughter unless you're wearing a mask. Well, I mean, that, that would be obviously a different set of circumstances. But in the normal routine of living my life, if I've got to go it, to go to this restaurant, I got to wear a mask. I'm not. I'm not going. I'm going to go to school. My kids just not going to school. We're not going to, uh, you know, bend our knee again to these, you know, people who may or may not know 
uh, what indeed they're talking about. But I want to go through the Bangladesh study. I mean, I think that's the most interesting um, study we've seen, 340,000 people. Uh, I want to walk through the math, um, kind of give a statistical analysis of what happened um, there. That's, uh, it's, it's called peer-reviewed, but, but I want to show you how they get to peer-reviewed and how incidental the difference is. How I mean, it's it's a it's a twenty percent or ten percent more likely, or twenty percent more likely, and it's just I mean they're playing games with numbers is what they're doing, and um, you know I, I, it'll, it'll be very interesting to watch the American people be asked to put a mask back on, and how many will? I mean, some will. Some have never taken it off. I mean, you still got people riding around in cars by themselves. I saw someone Sunday at the beach walking on the beach by themselves wearing a mask, uh, you know, more power to you. You're certainly entitled, I mean, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. If your pursuit of happiness includes wearing a mask in a car by yourself, have at it. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, we talked a little bit this morning about from on one end of the spectrum, you got never Trumpers. On the other end, always Trumpers. I don't think there's any rationale to being a never Trumper. I don't think there's much to being an always Trumper. I would refer to myself as a most-time um, Trumper. But, but when you look at the political orbit today and you sense, I mean, if you're a Republican, you feel that Trump is being unfairly gone after. I mean, there's a real technical way of explaining it. And, and you want retribution. You want revenge. You want to settle that score. Some Democrats do. Other Democrats are more reserved. And I guess out of respect to the sanctity of the process, Reb, are a little more calculating in what to do in response to how you believe uh, the, the, the former president, current front runner of the GOP is being, and I'll use the word persecuted politically, uh, political strategist, commentator, young voices, Elizabeth Grace Matthew is with us. Miss Matthew, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, so explain to us from your perspective, you're a political strategist. Um, should the house Republicans aggressively pursue Biden impeachment inquiry? or should they be more hesitant and incremental? Yeah, I mean, I think you've heard uh, things on both sides, right? And folks can kind of listen to both of those and see see where you come down. I think um, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy, they're saying they're going to pursue an impeachment inquiry um, soon and, and with vigor. Uh, and then you have other people saying, um, some of the Congress people and Senate uh, Republicans, saying that they don't think it's a good idea to go down that path at this time. Now, um, Article 2 of, you know, the Constitution is what is what gives grounds for um, the Senate to remove a federal officer for, for, for um, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors or bribery. And then Article 1 is what um, gives the House the sole power to bring charges against a federal officer. And the Constitution actually offers no specific guidelines on rules for impeachment inquiries. So the House can do an impeachment inquiry without an initial resolution, which is what I think we'd be talking about here. Um, and so people have differences of opinion about whether or not that, that would be wise at this time. A lot of people believe an impeachment inquiry is the only way to get to the truth, that the DOJ is stonewalling, that they won't answer questions, they won't provide certain communique. Um, and I, I personally think that may be the impetus that brings 
some of the more reserved members of the House on board that if we're going to get to the bottom of, we don't have any concrete evidence, but we got a lot of circumstantial evidence to believe that leads us to believe Joe Biden has not been completely and totally honest with the American people. How do, how does this play into the presidential campaign? I mean, obviously, Donald Trump has four indictments. I mean, he'll be in a courtroom in the morning giving campaign speeches in the afternoon, it looks like. But, but as it relates to Joe Biden, how do you suspect an impeachment inquiry would affect his run for re-election? Boy, I think it's, it's hard to say because we're still 15 months out, right, from, from the general election. But one of the things I think is really interesting, just in terms of background here, is that you have the vast majority of the American people do not want a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And yet, it looks like that's where we're headed. And we could be headed there with, with two presidents who faced impeachment, which, to be, um, again, put this in historical context, there have been only four impeachments in the history of the country. This would be a fifth. And so it definitely creates a, a, I think, uncharted territory going into a general election. As a political strategist, last question, um, what do you make of the indictments leading to a higher level of support amongst Republican primary voters of Donald Trump? What, what are we to make of that? Yeah, I think our country is really politically polarized right now, right, in terms of, you know, red team, blue team. And I think that um, anything that looks like one or the other team is unfairly or um, unduly um, attacking someone on your team is going to lead you to cling all the tighter um, to your own team. And so I think that given the way that social media now controls so much of our political discourse and given the level of polarization we have and how that's manifested on social media, it, it really creates this tribal imperative for people to um, feel all the more close to their own uh, political, um, you know, the people they support politically when those people are under attack. Very well explained. Thank you for your time, ma'am. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much. Let's um, let's get back to this real quick. Um, we had an obligation with Fox, and we never know exactly when we can get those folks in the studio. I know we jump around. We break, you know, what we were talking about. I want to go to this um, random. Remember these three words. You ready? Randomized control trials. I mean, they refer the acronym is RCT. I mean, that's the CDC lingo. That's the National Institute of Health lingo. Um, and what what a lot of us are arguing when we say there's not been peer reviewed research that defends mask mandates, we're saying the failure of these randomized control trials to provide the evidence that supports we should all be wearing wearing masks. Um, I want to give you some statistics real quick and um and then we'll get to the phone uh the bangladesh randomized control um i mean it was a survey that was random it was not uh, what is the opposite of random non-random right Uh, this was a randomized test um so 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 stick with me for a second because i understand that statistics are, are far more visual than they are uh, in audio format. So, so and, I, and I understand we're, we're not on television. We're not on a podcast. We are, we're actually doing Facebook live, uh, but I don't have an easel. I don't have a PowerPoint. I'm reading this um, verbatim. The Bangladesh RCT, and remember what RCT, it's randomized controlled um, test. The Bangladesh study found that 1,086 people in the study's mask group um, got COVID. 
1,106 people in the study's non-mass group got COVID. That, that, that's statistically insignificant. In other words, 340,000 people. Um, the 20-person difference, so you got 1,086, you got 1,106. Uh, a 20-person difference out of 340,000 participants meant that one out of 132 people got COVID in the control group, one out of 147 got COVID in the mass group. Uh, so, so, so if you're, if you're surveying 340,000 people and one in 132 people not wearing a mask got COVID, one in 147 people who were wearing a mask got COVID, is that statistically significant? Well, the answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. That equates to about three-quarter of 1% of the over 340,000 people, um, excuse me, three, in the control group. Less than 1%, 0.76 in the people in the group wearing masks. 0.68 of people in the in the group, excuse me, it's 0.76 in the group not wearing a mask. 0.68 in the group wearing a mask. So the statistical difference is 0.08 percentage points. Eight one hundredth of one percent. And I mean, you know, is that statistically significant? I mean, if you knew that you lessened the likelihood of you getting COVID by eight one hundredths of one percent, not eight tenths of a percent, certainly not eight percent, but eight one hundredths of one percent is is the odds you've increased. In other words, you're wearing a mask, you're being safe. Yeah, you're being safe by eight one hundredths of one percent, and they're calling that statistically significant. They, they're saying it's a 9%. And it's, it's um, here's their word. You ready? Clear evidence that the surgical mask work. Well, to me, it's clear evidence surgical mask doesn't work. But it's so random, going back to the random you know, trials. But but that, that's the point I want to get across. When, when we hear these talking heads and these medical experts say, you know, we had one group wearing a mask and one group not wearing a mask. And the group wearing a mask were 9% less likely to get COVID than the group who were not, or excuse me, who were wearing a mask. Okay, you, you've got a group. You've got 340,000 people. If you wear a mask, the odds are 1 in 132 people of you getting COVID. If you don't wear a mask, the odds are 1 in 147 people of you getting COVID. So if you're wearing a mask, the odds are 0.68. If you aren't wearing a mask, the odds are 0.76. So by wearing a mask, you lessened the likelihood that you get COVID by eight one hundredths of one percent. Boy, that's really rolling the dice, isn't it? You know, I'm I'm gonna wake up on the bad side of the bed. I'm gonna be an outlaw and a cowboy and a rebel all in one, and I'm gonna take a chance. You're not taking a chance. It's eight one hundredths of one percent. But this is the study that the National Institute of Health has used to show you're far less likely that there are control groups. And, you and you're, you know, you need to wear a mask. It's safer. Well, it is safer. It's eight one-hundredths of one percent safer. And, and the absurdity of how we've been convinced that the mask, I mean, the, the, the mask is safe. The mask works. Well, I mean, if, if you believe that, I mean, that, that could be a standard deviation. That could be 
just, I mean, the coincidence of that happening. But, but that's where this, this kind of science has brought us. And, and once again, the Bangladesh study is the most extensive that I've seen. I mean, it, I could get elaborate, but it would confuse you as much as it confuses me. I mean, I could read it verbatim. You wouldn't understand what I'm reading, and I wouldn't either. I mean, there are a lot of clinic, clinical talk in here, a lot of medical terminology in here. But, um, but the, the reported difference of 0.08 percentage points was deemed statistically significant. How? How can that be statistically significant? It's not. I mean, if the odds were 30% more, 40% more, you know, that's 1% is not statistically significant to me. But they're arguing that 8 one-hundredths of 1% is. And that's playing games with numbers in the name of what? Forcing people to do what government says we must do. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. I'm going to do my old study right now. Ken, do you know anybody that wore masks that didn't get COVID? <laughs> I, I don't. It seems I, to me, Breeze, the more people, the, the, the people that wore masks and got shots had multiple, you know, cases of COVID. Uh, that was my next question. Do you know anybody that wore a mask and got shots and uh, gold all stayed at home for a year and a half that didn't get COVID? Well, here's, here's the, here's the only anecdote I can speak for. I mean, I don't know the others. Nobody in my family has had a vaccine. Everybody in my family has had COVID. Nobody in my family's had it twice. Yeah, there you have it. Now, let's get back to what you and I'm going to lead back to what you're saying. I was thinking last night about the housing bubble in 08. And y'all know my position. I'm saying it was done on purpose. But even if it wasn't done on purpose, let's just say they were idiots and thought that they could get away with it and that they could make these subprime loans and everything be hunky-dory. But what was the end result? Banks and everyone else, which I think it was a done deal beforehand, they became more powerful. Who became less powerful? We, the people, the middle class. Then you jump forward to the, the next crisis. I might be skipping a few, but then you have this whole called scamdemic. Who became more powerful? Who became weaker? I believe, of course, that the whole thing was planned and orchestrated for that purpose. Okay, now you go. Now you keep going forward to what's going on now. You know, and also all of the money that was spent to bring you up to inflation. I, of course, think that was done on purpose too. And, you know, there would have been a time when you to think that you're, the person was crazy. But I'll tell you another thing. I think that what's going on in Hawaii, there is evil going on there. And those Hawaiians, it's a Democrat-controlled fascist state. And I'm telling you right now, there was evil there. I've even heard people say that they used some kind of laser weapon to start the fire. And you know what? Uh, Ten years ago, I'd have laughed at you. But it wouldn't surprise me a damn bit. It really wouldn't. But so here's my next point going forward to mask and all of that. That is going to be done again for no other reason than – go ahead. You there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're here. Continue. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's going to be done – it's going to be done in the Democrat states to try to throw the election as much as they can. But what I would like to see – see, nobody's going to listen to me nationwide or even sports-wide. But if Donald Trump would say, hey, we've got to fight against these people that are trying to destroy our country, and I would like for every one of my supporters to go to their bank. And I realize you people with all businesses, 
that like to write off your credit cards and all that, you know, like to use your business credit card. Hell, we do also. But save your receipts. Pay cash for everything. And start paying cash, more and more cash, more and more cash, and start weakening these banks. Because every time we swipe a credit card, we are making the enemy more powerful. And I would like to figure out a way to go after your vanguards and your Breitbart's and figure out a way to get our money out of that stuff. People aren't going to listen to me. But if somebody like a Donald Trump and the rest of the and other people, even Robert Kennedy, your junior, started saying, hey, you need to divest yourself from the cathedral. We need to start paying in cash. We need to use it and all that. Maybe they would listen. But, you know, talking about this all day long ain't going to do nothing unless we come up with an aggressive strategy to combat the evil empire, brother. And that's what we're going up against, the evil empire. And I'm telling you, something evil is going on in Hawaii, and they'll use that crisis, whether they did it on purpose or not, to have take more and more control. And they'll build that whole area be built to like a big, huge, smart city, which at the end of the day, these big cities are just going to become jails for us all, brother. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Let's take another call before we take our, our next break. Jim in Florence, good morning. You are on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. So I, I kind of see the mask thing as I see gun control. I, I don't really care if it works or not. I'm still not wearing it, uh, just like gun control. I don't care if it actually works or not. Uh, I, I, you're not going to do it. But, Ken, well, when we look at the totality of what's going on right now and – I, I, with all due respect, I kind of see you as a milk toast fence sitter with a lot of these things, specifically climate change. Um, I, I think we have to call these things out as we see it. But when I look at the Democrats, I ask, where's the where's the off ramp? There's clearly no off ramp. I mean, w- we would have laughed at each other if we just said four years ago they were going to indict Trump. Um, they were going to put him in uh, jail and uh We'd have laughed at all these things happening right now, and there's clearly no off-ramp. They're going after uh, journalists in New York. Uh, AG up there is going after James O'Keefe. Already indicted Trump four times. Uh, We can constantly look at these things, and they just keep ramping it up, and it just gets worse and worse. And so I ask the question, you know, you don't want us to go down the road of the Democrats, but what choice do we have I, at some point? I, I don't think it's crazy to think at some point they're going to come after you, Ken, or somebody like you. Um, I, I think we, it's time to fight fire with fire. It's time for Alan Wilson to start investigating uh, Brad Hutto, um, uh, any Democrat, Gerald Malloy, uh, specifically Donald Beatty. I mean, he's clearly violated oil. Well, violated the Constitution. Casey Manning clearly violated the Constitution. Um, uh, Why are we not investigating Democrats and putting them in jail, too? And maybe we can slow this thing down and come back to a level of reasonableness. But we're not going to. They're just going to keep chipping away at us um, until we finally look around and go, well, I didn't see this coming. So thank you, Ken. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. I've been called a lot of things. I don't know if I've been called a milk toast fence sitter. Um, I'm insulted. I mean, it takes a lot to insult me, but but I'm insulted. Um, let's take a break and let me, let me take a big swig of my Celsius. Uh-oh. And make sure I'm not Jim. As, as a milk toast fence sitter. Um, I understand what he's saying. You know, it, where's the off-ramp? 
I've argued that there's an off ramp. I've argued there's a there's a place that we can get off and be highly effective in addressing what the Democrats are choosing to do by weaponizing our government. Um, that that's a legitimate concern. That's a legitimate complaint. Um, fighting fire with fire. The only thing that I'm arguing, what is the grand strategy? What is a win in our world? I mean, if we, let us hypothetically say, Alan Wilson went after a, a Democrat legislator and he got banished from the state house. I mean, is your world better? I mean, I understand we got a feather in the cap. We got a skin on the, on the wall. But is your world better? Is America better? Is the, is the plot of the working family and, 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 you know, the American worker, the American way of life, is that better? I, I, that's what I'm focused on and concentrating on. And I understand the, 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 I mean, the sincerity of how people feel about, you know, the, 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 the one side, the two sided, or excuse me, the one sidedness of the way Donald Trump gets treated. And they do feel like it's them when, when they go after Trump, they're, they're going after them and, you know, they're, they're voting uh, habits and their way of seeing things. So hold on to that. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Four three six six one zero nine three seven. So let's go down that road for a second. Um, what does a win look like? I mean, I guess once a candidate, always a candidate. Once an office holder, always an office holder. Rez accused me not of being milk toast and a fence sitter, but looking at things as a candidate would look at things. How do you get in charge? You can't do anything if you don't have any control over the government. I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, the majority wins. I mean, we, you know, we've won some of those Supreme Court. We've lost a lot of those. I mean, there is no doubt about it. If Donald Trump were elected 2020, uh, we wouldn't have a, a DOJ in shambles as we do. I mean, th- there would be issues in America. Of course, there would be. I mean, the fundamental issue in America today is we are deeply divided. We are deeply, deeply divided, and it's not just on one central issue. It's on you know, there are several macro issues out there. Um, the, the, the biggest divide in America today is everything's okay or no, it's not. I mean, I happen to have an apocalyptic view of America. I think we're desperate for solution. I mean, I think America's at the precipice of dramatic decline. Not, not just, uh, you know, uh, well, we missed here, but we got that right. We missed over here, but we got that right. No, I think America is fundamentally in a dangerous place. Now, now, some don't believe that. Why don't you believe that? Well, you think that liberal leadership is addressing climate change. Liberal leadership is going to fund some of these government programs to level the playing field. I'm on the other side going, yeah, but I mean, it's costing us a trillion dollars a year we don't have. And look at inflation, how rampant inflation is. I mean, we just don't get much right anymore when it comes to governing. But, but And I understand. I mean, I've used the analogy of slow-pitch softball. When you hit all the home runs, you start hitting the ball up the middle, and a, te- a pitcher's a sitting duck. And every now and then, teams conclude, that's not good for anybody. So if you stop hitting at our pitcher, we'll stop hitting at yours. There's a gentleman's agreement. No way the playbook, rule book doesn't say that. So, so I understand the human energy and emotion of, hey, man, they came after my guy. Why aren't we going after their guy? I get that. That that would be a natural reaction. But you've got to balance that with how do you win elections? I mean, do you believe that do you believe independent voters in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, do you believe that independent voters 
I mean, if your campaign slogan was an eye for an eye, two for the two, I mean, do you believe that resonates with, I don't. I mean, I think those people are worried about, we just said, guys, 10% of all users create 92% of all tweets. We live in that universe. Everybody listening to my voice is some, to some degree in that universe. That there's, a, there's a much larger universe that exists of people who don't live in that. The majority of Americans don't tweet. I mean, I just said 10% of all users account for 92% of all tweets. 69% are fairly liberal Democrats. How many independent voters, people that generally decide these big elections, are the type that say, I just wish they would get something done and learn to get along? The majority. The overwhelming majority. I mean, the majority of, I mean, I, I believe this. I think the majority of Americans believe Donald Trump did something wrong, but he's being unfairly treated. I mean, I, I've, I've seen polling. I mean, the majority of Americans believe Donald Trump did something wrong, but he's being unbelievably unfairly treated. We, we've got to accept, and it's frustrating for all of us to, 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 to understand how disengaged most of the public are. They're not very interested. Once again, they think Trump did something wrong. They just don't think he should be treated as he is, but they're not going to lose much sleep over it. In all honesty, I think the more controversial politics becomes, the more people check out and move on and say, look, man, those two parties are at one another every second of every day. One believes this about the other. They believe this about that. I'm just not going to waste much of my time being involved in something with that much negativity. I'm not defending it because I think, once again, what, what other than raise your family and take care of your business, what, 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 what is more important than being a contributor to how our country is run and operates? The majority of people who listen to this show believe that America has serious problems. That there are some that don't, but the majority of you who listen to our show think that we are a, I don't want to say a desperate nation. I think we're a, a desperate nation. But some of you believe that we're, ah, oh, no, we haven't gotten to the point of no return. I mean, we can fix this if we'll only work and, and be civil one to another. I don't buy that. That's why I've advocated for kind of fighting fire with fire. I think you do have to do things to the other side to convince them, hey, man, it's a little like baseball. If you hit my cleanup batter, uh, you know, my guy throws 95 too. I mean, that's kind of an unspoken rule in baseball. What, what would be the cost if, let's say, the Braves play the Dodgers and the Dodgers hit Ronald Acuna um, and then they hit uh, Greg Olson, Matt Olson, Matt, Matt Olson. Uh, on back-to-back, you know, I know they don't back, but, I mean, you know, that's the two superstars of the Braves. And, and next thing you know, one's got a bruised rib, the other's got a broke elbow or dislocated elbow, and the Braves pitchers just continue not to throw at the Dodger hitters. So the Dodger hitter says, well, I mean, if, I mean the Dodger pitcher says, well, I'm not going to throw at my guy. Let's hit there. You know, let's hit Azuna. You know, let, let's hit the other guy. Let's hit Ozzy Albies, let's hit whomever. And, and all of a sudden, the Braves pitcher, who throws 96, you know, just drills one of the Dodgers hitters. And then another, and then another. You know what happens then? I mean, the Dodgers stop hitting the Braves players. Sure. I mean, it polices itself. So I understand that mindset. And I do believe that that is the answer. But but where do you go? What what do you do? Do you launch an impeachment inquiry into into Joe Biden? I mean, the frustration we have is we, we are so aware of how little influence we have on academia, how little influence we have on the media how little influence we have on the federal government. 
Remember the collar counties, the people that work in our government? I mean, they voted for Joe Biden 80 to 20 percent. College campuses and, and the faculty. Uh, how many Trump? How many Trump voters hang around faculty lounges in universities across America? I mean, we're fighting an uphill battle. There's no doubt about it. And you got to be very strategic when you're fighting an uphill battle. You've got to deploy resources and assets in a way that the others don't think you will. And and yes, Trump is a disruptor. But w- what has Trump offered? I mean, he's a bit of a martyr. I think we would agree to that. I mean, he's a bit of a um, he's a symbol now of what government will do if you kind of stand in their way of getting what they what they want. But but what strategically do we do to win? I mean, at the end of the day, guess who runs the government? The people who get elected, right? I mean, that's who runs the government. Um, right now, we've got more House members than they do. We've got fewer senators than they do. We've got far fewer um, influencers in the federal government than they do. We've got far fewer influences in media than they do, far fewer influences in academia than they do. So, so we got to do more than just hit the Dodger cleanup batter. We, we got to strategically think through what, what is a long-term plan. What, where do we go from here? And I'll tell you the guy that's got my attention is Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, he's aggressive. He's radical. He's out there on some fronts. Josh, can we get in queue? I, I want to I play this. Th- this isn't a podcast. Um, and this is a guy who was in biotech. I mean, he understands the way some of the, uh, some of the licensing starts. So, so, so here's a guy who, to me, has clarity of thought, clarity of vision. He's radical, no doubt about it. But, but here's a guy who I think understands how to win the battle how to offer alternative proposals and ideas that will convince independents. We're not trying to convince red state Republicans in South Carolina. I mean, we've got to convince independents that our way is is the best way. Let's go to Ramaswamy. You ready, Josh? Ready. Let's talk about Big Pharma. Yeah. You know, I've heard that Big Pharma is the, the world's biggest lobbying organization. I think that's accurate. How much of the government do they control? They only control the portion of the government they need to control, which is the FDA which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, and they're pretty effective at controlling it, actually. So a lot of the regulatory hurdle for developing a new medicine, that actually helps Big Pharma because it makes it harder for a competitor to scale that same cost of capital. Simple story. So so just think about the hypocrisy underlying this. You see what happened with the COVID vaccines, right? The same FDA that says... You have to take 10 years to develop a new medicine or a vaccine and spend billions of dollars. So much so that not only are we going to not say it's safe, we won't even give an individual the opportunity to, in their own free spirit, with full information, try it. You don't even have the right to try it if it hasn't been through 10 years of testing. We, the government, will not give you that choice. Is the same government that then says... Oh, but here's a vaccine that makes it through in less than one year, and you don't have the choice not to take it. Your only choice is to take it. You can't believe those things at the same time, that here's a medicine that's been through five years of testing, and you don't have the choice to take it even if you want to, is the same government that says that here's something that sailed through in less than one year, and you have no choice but not to take it. You can't believe those two things at the same time. That's the product of hypocritical lobbying. Mm-hmm. 
That's the answer. There you have it right there. Is Big Pharma wins on both sides of that trade. On one hand, they win from it having to take that much longer because at least keeps the competition out for the normal process. But under circumstances where they're gonna to stand to benefit from it, we'll get a fast track process to say, not only do you get to develop it at the public taxpayer's expense, by the way, funding the entire process, but mandates to have to take what they developed. That's corrupt. That's broken. That's mm -hmm. why I favor a dramatic, drastic gutting of the FDA. It's something that even, you know, my time in industry, here's what they would say. I, I, was, I, I had views that were critical of the FDA, but I had to keep them to myself because the thing they told me, and I was running a company, right? My job was not being a public figure or a spokesman. It was to be the CEO of a successful company that I was leading, thousands of people, jobs created behind actually the medicines we're developing. I can't just leave them hanging out to dry because I say something bad about the FDA. There's an old industry adage in pharma, quiet. Everybody in pharma knows this adage to be true. They say FDA never forgets. So if you say something about the FDA, they will make it hell for you. You will have hell to pay for it. And it was funny, actually, even when I went to law school, I mean, this is after years of being a biotech investor, it was like an eye-opening experience for me to say that, wait, the FDA is actually bound by law. That was a revelation to me. If somebody's working in the industry, people in the farm industry aren't thought to think that way either. Whoa, the FDA is thought to be God. But the fact that they're bound by law, that's like a novel notion for most people who work in the interstices of this industry. And so that's the way it works. What you think of as some mid-level government bureaucrat whose name you'll never know and never care to know, this guy's like a king when it comes to the farm industry. And what does he want? He gets the job on the way out, a lucrative job on the other side. So that's the way this works. It is a corrupt game. And you know what? Now, I'm not CEO. So let's spend the last hour antagonizing the Trump voter, myself included. <laughs> oh, Rev and great. I and Josh ganged up on me during the break. How dare you? Say something about our fearless leader. No, Josh, you, you said that you thought Trump was a revolutionary. Yeah. you Explain were, yourself. Okay, so I think, and it, we're getting a little bit into semantics, but I think that we would not have Vivek Ramaswamy without Trump. That's what I believe. I don't disagree um, with that. I, I, I'll agree with that. So I think Trump may have started the revolution in the same way. So he may not be George Washington, He's more akin to the whoever shot the shot hurt round the world. I served with George Washington. Donald Trump is no George Washington. <laughs> okay. I, I can assure you. I've not seen any statues or portraits of Donald Trump with a sword and not an yet. army and, and an army. You know what I mean? I think Washington deserves that consideration where nobody else does. I mean, he fought. I told you the day I walked around the state house and it dawned on me every statue, every portrait I saw of George Washington. It was not with a book in his hand or a computer in his hand. It was with a sword in his hand. I mean, he literally fought, uh, you know, for the nation's existence and freedom. No, but but I, it's still, you're still confirming what I'm arguing, that mm -hmm. he is a disruptor. Which I, I don't disagree it, with An that. absolute political disruptor, a wrecking ball unlike modern American politics has ever seen. He is to be commended and congratulating uh, for doing the— the, the almost impossible. I mean, to win in 16, to come as close as he did in 20. Some argue he did win. They just shafted him out of it. You know, I'm kind of in that camp, to be honest with you, um, to be the front runner in 24. But, but I'm just arguing he's not a revolutionary. He is absolutely a disruptor. He is absolutely 
uh, you know, a political unicorn. But but he's not talking about things in a revolutionary fashion. He's never said that. I mean, he's never said, um, well, I'll give an example. A revolutionary doesn't keep uh, Fauci. They don't hire Bill Barr or, or Christopher Wray. I mean, if you're sincerely a revolutionary, then, then you, I mean, you, I mean, Trump's a disruptor. And I'm not, look. I'm on Team Trump. I mean, you know that. I, I'm, you know, I'm a most times Trumper. But, but if we are in need, if if the if the if the Republican base believes that we've got to instill a revolutionary mindset into our party, the only guy that's talking that way is Vivek Ramaswamy. Am I wrong, guys? I mean, you, you both of you are hardcore Trump voters. I mean, both of you are more hardcore Trump voters than I am. I'll level with you. I mean, I could be talked out of voting for Donald Trump, not not into voting for Chris Christie or, or you know, or anybody else. But, but yeah, I mean, if Ramaswamy and Trump were sitting here articulating their next 50 years of America, Ramaswamy would probably sell me because I tend to think he has a, a deeper understanding of how to change the body politic in a revolutionary um, sort of way. Rev, Rev asked an interesting question. So it doesn't concern you that in his past he was associated with Soros and some of these less than conservative causes. Why does Trump get a pass on being a contributor to Nancy Pelosi all these years and giving Chuck Schumer all this mm-hmm. money all these years? We're not going to find a perfect candidate. And I also wonder how Ramaswamy can handle it when all those forces that are against Trump now, let's say that Ramaswamy got the nomination and all those forces that are against Trump now line up against him because you know they will. It'll be like, hey, you thought Trump was bad. This guy's worse. How has Trump handled it? He's kept fighting. He's indicted four times. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying. I'm trying to be devil's advocate for a second. The the point I'm trying to make is that, that, that Trump is a political wrecking ball unlike any we've ever seen. He's not a revolutionary. If we want to continue with the political wrecking ball, if we think there's more to be torn down before we think about, you know, building it back in a revolutionary way, then Trump's the obvious choice. But if you believe there's enough social unrest and civic, un- if, 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 if enough of the public doubt the sincerity and honesty of our government, Trump's done that. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That will be his enduring legacy. I mean, he made some mistakes. He got some things right, some things wrong. Join the club. I mean, he's not a perfect president. There is no perfect president. Believe it or not, what did Dr. Bolt say about George Washington? He lost more battles than he won, but he endured. He sustained. He hung in there some way, somehow, and out of that came the birth of the greatest nation man has ever known. Trump is going to be always remembered as the guy that disrupted the political norm, unlike anybody ever has in modern American history. But he's never led me to believe he's the leader of a revolution. He's always led me to believe I'm man enough to stand against the machine and challenge the machine every minute of every day. And he's done that. And God bless the man for what he's had to endure, what he's had to deal with. Some self-inflicted. I mean, Rev knows that. Josh knows that. Of course. I mean, so, some of the um, some of the problems he's got, he created. I mean, he, he you know, he probably mishandled classified information. He probably obstructed justice. Other presidents have done the exact same thing. But, but Trump has not walked the straight and narrow because that's not who Trump is. And, and that's kind of why we like him because he doesn't walk the straight and narrow. He doesn't, you don't get to tell Donald Trump what to do, how to do, when to do. 
but but he's not a revolutionary. And the only point I tried to make is if we are indeed at the precipice of a revolution, I, I just don't think Trump is the guy to get us there. I still think there's more wrecking ball that, that needs, that, needs that, to fly. And that is more than fair. Because I think, and, and I've You don't said think this, he's finished. He's not. He's partially I mean, done with tearing it down. Look at the DOJ, the FBI, the IRS, the FDA. But but you're kind of agreeing with me that you're, you're kind of agreeing with me that there's there's a choice here to continue the demolish, right? I mean to continue to demolish what is and historically's been you know what we trust in, or or you know it's been demolished. Its integrity is being impugned to the point of it's time to kind of instill a, a kind of a revolutionary era. In American now, politics. Now, would I like to see Ramaswamy be part of, you know, the continued teardown and then eventual build up or rebuild or reconfigure or whatever it is? Of course. Well, let me ask you this. When, when I have said over the years that the concern I have with Trump is his lack of intellectual curiosity. I mean, the guy's not dumb. You don't end up with a billion bucks. And, and, and somebody, I, I love it when people say he's dumb. I mean, if you believe Donald Trump's dumb, then you'll get it. I mean, well, anyway, I'll just leave it there. It's hard to believe that somebody would think he's dumb, but but he's not intellectually curious. He he's just not. I mean, you you, you kind of got to admit that about the man. He's a, he's a he's a he's a bull in the china shop at about everything he's ever done. But but I've said for five years, six seven years since he got elected, that we at some point in time in this movement's existence. There's going to have to be some intellectual underpinning. There's going to be a half. There's going to have to be an understanding, not of just where the crooks and corruption is, but how do we reform it? How do we make it better? I mean, we just didn't say "damn the king." We said "damn the king" plus unalienable rights and life, liberty. We kind of had a plan. I mean, what would America do if Washington won the war and Jefferson and Hamilton wasn't there? to provide the intellectual underpinning of the great debate in American, uh, early American history. You see where I'm headed? Why? Well, I, I mean, Washington was not a, a great philosopher. Right. I mean, he was a dis- I mean, he was the guy that stood strong and tall with a sword in his hand against the British Empire. Francis Marion was one of those guys who stood strong and in the most, in the most manly and masculine way imaginable, did not run from the most powerful army in the world. But neither one of those guys thought about, you know, what comes next. I mean, they they led the the they led the the well, the colonist forces in the in the in the Revolutionary War, but but Jefferson and Hamilton did what? I mean, they thought about these things. Adams was a thinker. I mean, they thought about okay, we 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 could win this Revolutionary War. What does the dog do when it catches the car? And I think Ramaswamy talks in that way. You're you're right, Rev. There never is a Ramaswamy without a Trump. I mean, they, we don't have a chance at a political revolution. And, and I, I, I love the way the left dismisses this. Oh, these nuts are talking about revolution. That's kind of the way the British talked. I mean, it really and truly is. Um, and, and I read a, a lot of Pew Research on um, the, 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 the social unrest part of this, the, the lack of faith people have in its government. I mean, that's when a country, any country in the world, why are we exempt from that? Why are we? I mean, we're not. Uh, when when we have that much social unrest and that little faith in our government, I mean, any nation is ripe for a revolutionary era. Now, now what does that mean? Overthrowing a government? No, I mean, that's not what I'm arguing. I'm not saying overthrow the government. 
we're not going to have three co-equal branches of government anymore because those crazy revolutionaries said we aren't. No, it, it's reforming within the boundaries. There's nothing wrong with our government. It's the people who inhabit. I mean, the idea, the concept of the Declaration of Independence is still profound. It's timeless. The Constitution is still timeless. I mean, it's there. It's there to be, uh, you know, obligated. We need to obligate ourselves to it, believe in it, fundamentally trust in what it says. So, so the problem is not, you know, the form of government America has. The, the, the problem is what we've done with the government, how corrupt it's become, how on the take it's become. What did Ramaswamy just say? You knew better than to cross the FDA. Because I mean, they it, never forget. They never forget the punitive said. nature of government. I mean, that's corrupt in its core. Right. I mean, it, the punitive nature of government cannot coexist with the American Constitution because the American Constitution is intended to protect people from its government, not government from its people. But what Ramaswamy just said, when you're running a, a pharmaceutical company or a biotech company, and at some point in time you deal with the FDA, you know better than to get on their bad side because they're the big bad government and they make the rules. And if they choose to be punitive, they will choose to be punitive. That's kind of the message in, and what he says there, that's revolutionary. But that, that's, that's kind of an uprising of, of people who have been inside the belly of the beast and how, how do we make it better? So I'm not, I'm not discounting at all what Trump has done. The, the only argument I'm trying to make is if it, and I think Rev makes a legitimate argument, if we believe there's more to be torn down, then let's vote Trump. But if you sincerely believe that this is the moment in time that one political party can articulate a revolutionary perspective of where government is, where it needs to go, and how to get there, the only person in either party who say it, I'll tell you the second, I mean, the, the second most likely revolutionary in politics today is kind of RFK Jr. I mean, he says things in a little bit of a revolutionary um, sort of way. I mean, you know, Ramaswamy is the only guy that wraps his bus in 1776. You know, that that's kind of his shtick. I mean, that's his, that that's that's where he thinks he gains, uh, and he's playing politics. You know, Rev, Rev, that's an interesting, what do you make of all those associations he's had in his past with, with liberal causes, liberal candidates, liberal, um, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Is he a convert? Is he a fraud? What do you, what do you make of Trump's support of Pelosi? What, what do you make of Donald Trump being one of um, Chuck Schumer's biggest political supporters? I mean, all, all candidates who get there are going to have complicated coexistences. And that's, you know, Trump, Ramaswamy, anybody is going to be uh, in that, but especially if they come to the business world. I mean, if you, if you come from the real estate development world or the biotech world, you've often had to hedge your bets. You've often had to give a Democrat some money, give a Republican some money, keep your mouth shut about FDA, keep your mouth shut about the liberal New York City mayor. You know, you might want to build a hotel on that street corner one of these days, and I'd rather be in good standing than than not. Is somebody there? Let's go to the phone. Larry in Hartsville. Good morning, Larry. Hey, good morning, guys. This is all good stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'm a Trumpster, and, and I see the government is just so incredibly corrupt that there is more wrecking to do. Um, but at the same time, as simultaneously, I think, you know, it's time for a, a revolution, if you will. And, you know, I'm a little conflicted. I mean, I, I will, there's a big part of me that 
says, yeah, Trump's got to get the nomination. And it looks like he will. But he's got to win this thing because I want to see him and others destroy the factions of this government that have gotten so sideways and so corrupt and have done everything in their power to try to stifle him and us, for that matter. I mean, I just can't live with the fact, with the concept of him not winning because of them. Um, you know, I, I just I just can't fathom that, uh, and then it's going to be very disappointing if he doesn't. But but at the same time, I, you know, I like the the uh, the fresh revolutionary face of, of Ramaswamy, and you know, I guess my compromise in my mind is okay. Let's let's put them together. But I know we talked about you know, do we need a woman? As a VP, uh, you know, some of the wisdom people think we do. What about a Trump Ramaswamy uh, ticket? Um, I'll just put that out there. But thanks, guys. Enjoy it. Have a good day. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, I don't but, want to let the swamp win against Trump either. I mean, that's that's really drives my support for him. Okay. Other one, than the fact he's a good president, one thousand percent on board with you there. One thousand percent on board with you there. And there's nothing we can do. Here, here's our dilemma. The, the Democrats are going to do a better job. They know that Biden is diminished. They know that Biden isn't real smart. They know that Biden waited all of his life to have a chance to be president. When he finally gets the chance, he's not able to do the job. They know that. But they're going to circle the wagons. I mean, there will be a period of uncertainty, and they will hash that out. But when they decide whether Biden is there or not, is their nominee or not, they will circle the wagons. We won't. If it's Trump, about 10 to 14% of Republican voters are not going to participate. They just aren't. That makes it hard to win. That makes it extremely difficult to win. If Ramaswamy were the nominee, I would argue, Rev, probably the same percentage. They, they call him glib and, and revolutionary. dangerous. He's out of control. He doesn't know what he's talking about. When, when, when the forces say he doesn't know what he's talking about, you know what they're saying? He's, he's not a neocon. I mean, t the, the more I think about what Tucker said six months ago, the more I realize Tucker was over the target. It's all about when Trump said, I don't want to be president of the world. You know, that there's a video circulating on uh, Twitter now um, about Nikki Haley's wealth. You know, that yeah. there, was, there was some financial uncertainty in her life before she became um, ambassador to the UN, she left there. Um, life became a bit lucrative after she left there. Uh, the Boeing board, some of the others, uh, they're talking about Lloyd Austin being on the the Raytheon, formerly of the Raytheon, the Raytheon board. I mean, it, it, it confirms my, you know, money's the answer now. What's the question? Well, we know that to be to be real, but the Democrats are going to circle the wagons. They just are. I mean, they, 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 will, they will complain about Kamala Harris. They will complain about, uh, what's the guy, Gavin Newsom from California. But, but once they decide who their nominee is, they're going to do everything they can to beat Donald Trump, to beat Vivek Ramaswamy, to beat whomever. And, and I don't think Ramaswamy is ready to be president yet. But if the country's ready for a revolution, He's a revolutionary um, sort of candidate. Once again, I mean, he, when he gave a couple of answers at the debate the other night that were, I mean, they're interesting, but they're impossible. 
but 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 he's a he's that kind of candidate. I mean, he's you know he's he's swinging for the fence on every answer. And the reason I find him interesting is he doesn't want to send blank checks to foreign nations in the name of the American Empire. I mean that that to me that's the most radical thing the Republicans have done recently is disconnect themselves from the neocon movement that has dominated not just the Republicans but both parties and you know um, sending money to foreign lands in the name of American safety and security and you're seeing how powerful the military industrial complex still is when it comes to you know the coverage of a candidate uh, the, the 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 polling of a candidate uh, and, but but I want I want to say this and then we'll take our break Josh I am 1,000% supportive of Donald Trump. But there are many Republicans who say it's time for a revolution. The point I try to make with Josh, if it's time for a revolution, there is a revolutionary candidate. If there's more, you know, tearing down to be done, Trump's the obvious answer. But to me, they're the only two answers. I mean, nobody else is talking about the party and the, 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 the body politic in, in that sort of way. I mean, everybody else says to Jim's point, and I guess they would be milk toast fence sitters <laughs> in his, I mean, you know, seriously, I mean, everybody else other than Ramaswamy and Trump would be in Jim's eyes and a lot of others eyes, milk toast fence sitters. Take a break back in a few. Remember in 2016 when Rand Paul was going to be the different candidate. I do. And Chris Christie was going to be the different candidate. Yep. And Cheeto Jesus shows up. And everybody except him looked normal. <laughs> Remember that? Know, All of a sudden, Rand right. Paul looks normal. you got to be out there to make Rand Paul to Chris Christie appear to be normal status quo Republicans, but they were. And and I, I just think right now, Ramaswamy is a very unique political figure. I, I'm not saying he has all the answers. To, I, I don't want to be redundant. All I'm saying is a number of Republican voters have told me this feels like a revolution. And Trump's not a revolution candidate. It's a disruptor. This is a disruptive political moment. The American people believe that the government is working against them and something has to change. So, you know, I'll throw the the Molotov cocktail. I'll roll the grenade under the, you know, anyway, that's just, there's a lot of ways to describe it. And and I'm not saying Ramaswamy makes Trump look normal because nothing can make (laughs) Trump look like a normal political candidate or office holder, but he is far more of the revolutionary sort than Trump is. Let's go to the phone. Joel in Mullins. Good morning, Joel. You're on. Thank you, sir. Ken, uh, there's an ad that's been running uh, on your on this network uh, telling people that uh, Trump is the Democrats' secret weapon and that if we nominate him and let him run, we'll not only lose the presidency, but both houses of Congress. Uh, what is, what is, what's going on there? Is, is that them uh, trying to get a back way to addressing getting rid of Trump by, by uh, Democrats or Republican advice to other Republicans? That is a, thank you for the call. That's a political action committee's ad. I mean, I have no idea where the money comes from. That's some of that dark money, funny money. See, that sounds like that'd be something that DeSantis would, it'd be his position that Trump's not electable, I am. Or or they're playing chess and Trump is electable and they're trying to convince Republican voters that he's not. I'm right. of the opinion yeah, not Trump sure. is the most electable Republican. 
I mean, you know, and it's not that I believe independents are enamored with Trump. I don't for a minute. I don't think independents are enamored. I think they cut both ways with Trump. I think some independents will say, you know, the guy's crazy and, and things were never as we expect them to be. But gas was a dollar eighty nine a gallon. You know, a bag of um, a fifty dollar bag of groceries was fifty dollars, and now, now Trump contributed to some of that with um, uh, the the inflation. Run uh, that would have been the um, CARES Act. Yeah, the CARES Act. Uh, the, the CARES Act one and CARES Act two was actually on on Trump's watch, and then the other, uh, you know, make America great again. Again, uh, we just <laughs> printed money. I mean, we we just printed money until the print press gave out. I believe it was, and the, then we stopped. Then then came the Inflation Reduction Act, which hadn't nothing to do with and the american rescue plan came before the inflation oh, I reduction forgot about that one yeah i mean they, they were all over a trillion dollars each but who's counting um but no i think the ad is intended to convince republicans to reconsider their support for trump because it's less likely he wins in some of these with some of these independent voters in these um several swing states and that, now once again i don't think trump has improved his standing much with independence. I mean, I think he'll do a little better, but not a lot. The problem with Trump not being the nominee is the Trump voter not being a Republican voter. I mean, it's they're a Trump voter. And if Trump's not on the ticket, I'm convinced that 20% stay home. And that's a big number. I mean, that's a bigger number than the never Trumpers. And there has to be some, I said it in the last segment, the Democrats circle the wagons. They, that there will be 50, well, I mean, just, there's a poll out. 69% of Democrats don't want Biden to run again. But if given the opportunity to vote for him or not, they're going to, in, in, in unbelievable percentages, vote for him because they want to be in charge of government. And, and we have this conundrum within our party, 10 to 14, under no situation or circumstance, will vote for Trump, 30%, which is I thought, probably 20%. I think a third of the never, excuse me, a third of the always Trumpers will eventually go vote for, they ain't vote for Chris Christie, but but if Ramaswamy were the nominee or Tim Scott were the nominee, they, they'll, they'll reconsider um, what they said to the pollsters back when they answered the question. Let's go to the phone. Jay in Darlington. Good morning, Jay. You're on. Yeah, I just wanted to comment, uh, make an additional add some information to what the gentleman, the first the caller just a second ago was talking about the AP Action Group and their ads, you go to their website and look at what their statement is. They say that they're, a whole, that they're doing to initiate a wholesale rejection of conservative principles and create an opening for the decent human society that the overwhelming majority of Americans endorse. I mean, this is a disinformation campaign. I, I just want people to know that, and I'm not sure uh, people realize who that, who that truly is. Thanks for your time, guys. Thank you. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I don't know where the money comes from. I can assure you this. If they've got a website that says X, it's probably Y. <laughs> if they've got a website that says Y, it's probably it's probably Z. It's intended to manipulate. It's intended to distort your judgment in some way, um, shape, or form. Now, now the, the, the company line is Trump can't win because he's – not going to get all the Republican vote and a little bit at very few of the independent. They may be right. I mean, that, that may be the case, but I still believe the percentage of Trump voters who will stay home. If the nominee is somebody other than Trump exceeds that reality. 
And that's because Republicans aren't circling the wagons. We just, we've not made a deal. Drew McKissick will be with us tomorrow on the radio, and we're doing a podcast tomorrow. That, that's something Drew has to help figure out. I don't know how to reconcile that 30% and that 14%. But I'll tell you this, if the 14% is a real number, the Republican loses, no matter who it is. If the 30% is the real number, the Republican loses, no matter who it is. So there has to be some way to circle the wagons around Trump, Ramaswamy, um, Christie, whomever. Let me ask you a question, Rev. Mm -hmm. Christie or Biden? Could you cast a ballot for Chris Christie? Uh, I, I hate to say it. I'd have to sit it out. I just, I can't. I can't. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I, I expected that answer. That's exactly the answer I expected. And I hate to say that. But that's a half vote for Biden. <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's a half vote for Biden. Right. Um, Tim Scott. Would you vote for Scott? Absolutely. Nikki Haley. Yeah. Ramaswamy. Absolutely. He's a, well, he's a, no, I mean, Christie would be the only one that, you know, the Trump voter just absolutely would not would not vote for. Right. Let's go to the phone. Someone there? David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Dave. Uh, you know, I'm going to call you this thing, Milk Toast Host, but you know what? That is the fun and freedom of the forum of this show. I mean, so that, that was kind of interesting. I'm going to try to protect your reputation. Back in the day, man, you was a dandy Don on Friday nights. You remember that? I do. Calling them football games, man. There was a game when uh, Ainer played against the Loris Lions, and I, I like I love to watch them games, especially if it was like a two A football team or whatever. But there was a quote: "We're gonna run the ball until you can stop us," and that's part of politics. And the beauty of the old school football was the quarterback. Part of his greatness, he could carry out a fake. He's thinking about politics. Think about what some people call Russia hoax is not a hoax. That's 2016. Uh, the election was not stolen in 2020. You know, we can call that a hoax or not. Uh, and a lot of you just have to run through the fake when it comes to this. The same thing with Hunter Biden. But this has been such a great show because you guys talked about uh, the hurricanes in this event. Somebody brought up when you dam up rivers, you know, you change how nature flows. And I'm just looking back in the day. You think about it, drive to Columbia. The coastline of South Carolina was not Pauley's Island. There was a day it was the Sand Hills of Columbia. So you have to really get to some of this when you bring it into the creator or secular. So y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. We have jumped around a good bit today. We've covered a <laughs> lot of, I mean, we do that a lot. And, um, and I think Josh got stirred when I said that Trump was not a revolutionary uh, political candidate. You think he is. Let me ask you a question, Josh. Okay. You're, you're 25. Would your generation be more inclined if it was a mano a mano duel between Vivek Ramaswamy and Donald Trump? What do you believe the majority of conservative-minded millennials and people younger than that would do? I think they'd vote for Trump. Over Ramaswamy? Yes. Explain. I Because I disagree with you. Right. I think a lot of people in my generation are—it's—they're more—those who are politically minded, I think, understand— Oh, let me ask you this. Stop you Trump. there. I'm, I'm being rude, but, but let's do this. Okay. Of, of, of the— of the people in your generation, of your generation, 
How many are politically minded? I mean, what percentage? Is it more or less than 20%? I'd say more. Okay. Uh, but I would I would say those that are more politically minded are more liberal. You, I don't think you see as much conservative-minded young people these days. Uh, so when you're talking about conservatives, I think they appreciate the, ne- uh, the young people. I mean, they appreciate the necessity of Trump because— I'll be honest, like before Trump came on the scene, I wasn't very interested in politics. I thought it was this sort of checks and balances type thing where you get this wishy-washy liberal every four years then uh, or eight years. And then the next four to eight, you get some wishy-washy uh, conservative. And I think Trump comes on the scene. And like you said, he's a disruptor. But he's shown the necessity of the disruption. Like you said in the last uh, segment that... Uh, I man, I forget what you said exactly, but it was something of Vivek proposes certain things that we just can't do. That might be true, but I don't think we can have that mindset. I don't think I think, for example, you know, something conservatives talk a lot about is getting the Mexican vote and getting the black vote. That's a fantasy. That's never going to happen. Yeah, there's exceptions, but they're exceptional, exceptional They're It's not going to happen. The only way we can see the kind of change that you and me and Dave want to see is with someone like Donald Trump for now. Vivek may be a viable option in 10 years, but for now we need someone truly revolutionary because they are still trying to kick him out. He is still a threat to them. Not a Vivek, you know, like they're they're going to put down anyone. Like liberals today are uh, they're championing Chris Christie. They're applauding Chris Christie. If Chris Christie were the Republican nominee, they'd be, oh, he's Hitler. Oh, he's a Nazi, blah, blah, blah. But they are really putting all their cards on the table when it comes to getting rid of Donald Trump because I think he is more important than we're letting on. Could Ramaswamy be Tucker Carlson, Rush Limbaugh rolled into one? I mean, he's so articulate, right? Mm-hmm. uncommonly well-spoken. I mean, I think we would all, Obama-like. Wow. I mean, that, that's scary, but he is. I mean, he's a little bit like Obama. He is so in cadence. He is so on, it's a little bit spooky. I mean, it's like, is this dude real? Well, when Obama spoke, his cadence was almost perfect. His, the, the text of what he was saying, um, the facial expressions, it was almost like, wow, um, that guy's almost too good to be true. And and I sense that with Ramaswamy. I mean, it concerns me a little bit because it is almost too good to be true. When, 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 when you think he's going to be drug off course and he, and he seems to be informed about something he has no business being informed about. It's like, is this dude a robot? I mean, I know how hard it is as a candidate to know um, when you don't know what's coming next. And you know every time he goes on cable news, there's an attempt to ambush. I mean, you know that. So he walks into these unfriendly settings, and he never embarrasses himself. In fact, when they try to portray him as saying something far out of the mainstream, he says, you, you, mis- you misunderstood what I said. And it's so collected in how he addresses. It's almost like they, Jennifer, uh, excuse me, uh, MSN, Andrea Mitchell. Andrea Mitchell been doing this forever. And he kind of made her look like you just started doing this. Because she had one of those uh, gotcha moments, you know, and he's like, no, that's not what, at all what I said. And it, he was like the old hand 
And she was like the lady who, you know, just got off the local news and got promoted to one of the, the larger markets. And it's just like, it reminds me of Obama. I mean, when, when I'd watch, remember the scene in Coming to America when Eddie Murphy playing one of these characters or Cindy Hall play? Damn, that boy's good. You know, damn, that boy's good. It's almost like when I heard Obama speak as a, you know, as an office holder, I was like, he's good. I mean, he's really, <laughs> really, really good. When I hear Ramaswamy speak, I'm going like, dude is good. I mean, he's really, really, really good. But it's almost like too good to be true. I felt like that about Obama. I feel a little bit that way with, with Ramaswamy. Is he a person or is he a robot? Has somebody programmed this guy to give a sound answer on things he should sh- he should know nothing about and then basically do what Republicans hadn't been able to do in 25 years? That puts Andrea Mitchell and Chuck Todd in their place. <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, I, mean, I do too. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, let's go back to, I guess, what the most important story of the day is, and that is the impending hurricane. Um, it's very relatable in our world. I mean, if you've lived in South Carolina for any period of time, you know that um, the threat of hurricanes always come around this time of the year. We know how disruptive, talking about Trump being a political disruptor, how disruptive they can be in our lives. Uh, first and foremost, our prayers are with the people in the panhandle of Florida. It's a Category 4 hurricane um, making landfall about now. There will be a destruction. We hope there's no death, but there normally is um, some carelessness involved in, in some of this. But, but it will eventually make its way across Georgia, into the Carolinas, off the coast of South Carolina by wind. Early, early, late tonight. Yeah, and late tonight, overnight. early tomorrow morning. When you see Thursday morning, you you naturally think you know seven or eight o'clock, but it really is could be two or three o'clock in the morning. Better weather will will come by after that. But um, I think they're predicting in most of our listing area about five to eight inches of rain, which could cause some you know localized flooding, uh, and then wind forty miles an hour, gusting a little higher. Uh, so nothing to. Nothing to not think about. Yeah, just be aware. Be careful. I mean, we're kind of old hands at this if you've lived around here. It's just so interesting to me, the 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 uncertainty. It's a little bit different when you know there's a Category 3 or 4 hurricane bearing down on the coast of South Carolina. You know the fast and the hatch. Here's when we let our guard down. You know, I'm things way down to the panhandle of Florida, man. Next thing you know, there's 50, 60 mile an hour winds here and 20,000 people are without power. And that that's when it seems to me it's easy to prepare when you know there's bad news headed your way. It's a little bit easier to let your guard down when the uncertainty factor is like it is today. You know, it could go a little further west, could go a little further east. We'll get a lot of rain, but probably not a lot of wind. I just think we tend to let our guard down um, because of the uncertainty of what may or may not happen. You don't let your guard down when it's bearing down on the, on the coast of South Carolina. You know you better be prepared and ready but, uh, but once again, our prayers are with our friends down in the uh, panhandle of Florida. Um, just stay careful. Stay stay, stay aware. Uh, I guess go buy bread, fill up with gas. gas you know, we do all these things <laughs> down down south. It's a little bit like a, a snowstorm. We yeah. go crazy we know in, the, uh, in the grocery. Yeah, we do. Uh, just be careful. We'll talk tomorrow morning. Enjoy your day.